podcast listeners, welcome to episode 33 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers, and the unconventional. Try to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. Some of these individuals include Betty Lee, who did her first solo traveling around the world at the age of 60. Tae Kang Soon, who is the architect behind the People's Park Complex. Adrian Pong and a whole lot more. And today, uh, we are actually breaking the rule a little bit um, and have someone that's not from Singapore. And in fact, she is all the way on the other end of the world in Portland, Oregon, where I met her when I was attending the World Domination Summit. She's a very fascinating lady who goes by the name Michelle Jones. So Michelle is the founder of a higher uh, education institution, Wayfinding Academy. It is a new two-year college aiming to revolutionize the broken higher education system. And uh, they have been approved to actually offer the associate degrees by Oregon Higher Education Coordinating Commission. So Michelle has been teaching in traditional college for 15 years. And some of these institutions include, but not limited to, Boston University, University of New Mexico, and Concordia University of Portland. So she's also the organizer of TEDx Malhut for the last eight years. Yes. So if you have not noticed, this episode is going to be a lot longer than usual, three to four hours long. And it's because I'm actually combining two interviews into one. Uh, Over at the later part of the interview, you will find me having a conversation with Mac Lemberger, which is a student, a year one student of the Wayfinding Academy about her experience. So if you want to skip forward to that um, episode, to that part, uh, you can skip to about two hours and four. 50 minutes in and you'll probably be able to find um, that interview with her. So today in this conversation, me and Michelle, we spoke about how Michelle started Wayfinding Academy with only a personal budget for 15000 or 15000 for two years. Why Wayfinding Academy doesn't have grades, the importance of guides in a student's growth and much, much more. This episode, this conversation has been eye-opening for me and without further ado i hope you enjoy this conversation as much as i did hi michelle thank you for taking your time out to be here with me thank you brian this is fun <laughs> and hi dan um so i feel a good jumping off point uh, for today uh, would be a previous title uh, they have earned at this event uh, and what they call the world domination summit and you're being knighted as a magician yeah. So what are some of the amazing fleets you need to pull off, you know, to earn this title? I, I don't know if earn is the right word in this particular case, but it, it's a fun story. I was, so I think I got the title. I think I spent my first two years on the WDS core team before I had a title at all. Um, actually, back then, nobody had titles on the original team. And I think, so one day, uh, Chris Gilbo was trying to figure out, he wanted to give me a title and he was trying to figure out what an appropriate title was. And he said, well, how do you describe what you do? I said, I don't have any idea how to describe what I do for the team. Because uh, the team is, and the team right now, they've gotten people into really solid roles that really speak to their strengths. And they have pretty defined roles. I mean, still everybody does a little bit of everything, but they have pretty defined roles. Back then, we didn't. So... Uh, my job was literally, my role on the team was to do a little bit of everything. 
And he said, yeah, I think that's true. But I think you also have this knack for um, one of us comes up with a crazy idea and we say, oh, Michelle, can you make this ridiculous thing happen with no resources, like to do it with nothing? And so he said, you're kind of like you make things happen out of thin air. So that's where he decided that's like a magician, right? People who the role was to make things happen out of thin air. So I think the reason I, I guess if I did anything to earn it. What was the monumental? Yeah, I think the monumental <laughs> thing was, was that the second year, were you at the second WDF? No, this is my first year. What? Yeah. Oh And my I was God. upset that, you know, two more years. They're going to be great though. I They're going to be great yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. This, my favorite, maybe, was the second year, which was also in the theater that we had this year, the Newmark Theater. And um, this was before the WDS Foundation existed. Now they have the foundation where any profits, such as they are from the event, go to the foundation. They get given out as scholarships for real life. This is right before that got started. And there was a surplus. All the tickets had sold. We'd paid all the bills. There was a surplus. So Chris wanted to try to figure out what to do with it. It also happened to be the year that the, his book, The $100 Startup, had come out. So we got this crazy idea as a team that we wanted to give every attendee, so 1,000 people, a $100 bill or $100 and so that they could do with what they wanted. They could reinvest in themselves. They could give it away. They could do whatever they wanted, but they had to do something good with it. And they could define good however they felt like. So I was given the task of how do you give a thousand people a hundred dollars? That was the question. And so, and I think I was given in somewhat true WDS style a week to figure this out, maybe 10 days, something like this, right? <laughs> so I did a lot of research and ended up concluding that I thought that the best way to do it was to literally give everybody a $100 bill, not a gift card, not a refund on their way of paying for their ticket, but a literally a hundred dollar bill. So that was an adventure because we had to, you can't just go to the bank and take out a hundred thousand dollars in a hundred dollar bills. You have to arrange that in advance. So Chris arranged all these things and we went and we got them and then we had to put them all in envelopes for everybody. And then we had to secure this money for the next four days because you had to do it on a weekday. But the event, as you know, is on a weekend and we were giving it out Sunday evening at the very end. So we had to secure all this money. And so it was a delightful afternoon spent in his dining room uh, with envelopes and $100 bills and um, cigars and tequila. Because we figured, I don't know, this is what you'd do if you're surrounded by a whole bunch of cash. You'd have cigars and tequila, right? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. so things like that. So I think that was the big feat that, that I helped pull off that earned me, if I did earn it, that title. Uh, and then for the next three years after that, I continued doing like a lot of everything on the team. Uh, so I did retire from that role Wow, I guess it's been three years now. Yeah, 2015. Yeah, right? wow. Were you there since the first year? Yeah, since the very beginning. I met Chris three weeks before the first World Domination Summit. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, he somehow got me to join the team right then, and I've been, I'd been on the team ever since. So I was there at the beginning. Tell me that story. How did that, how did, what did you know about it three weeks before? How, did, how was the conversation like to sway you over? He, he and I met, um, I had not heard of WDS before. Oh, three, so three weeks. That's right. Okay, never, nothing. Never heard of it. With him? I met him because he was the closing speaker for the first TEDx event that I hosted here in Portland. And so he was our closing speaker our very first year. And at the end of that event, he said to me, you seem to know what you're doing with events. 
I have an event that's about this size coming up in a few weeks. Do you want to help? And I said, I sure, like, how can I help? I don't know, whatever. And so he said, oh, just come to, you know, come to my house next week at this time. We'll have a meeting and we'll get you involved. And I didn't know, but sure enough, like I show up at that meeting and now I'm on the team. Like, you know, <laughs> that's how it goes. That's how it goes with Chris. He finds, he finds good people who do interesting things or who have a talent or I don't know, something that he thinks there's potential there to help. And one of his favorite philosophies is um, that he puts people on his team who are already too busy. Like they already do too, too many things in their life. And then he, and then if they agree to add another, he knows that they're good, they're good for it. Because if they figured out how to do all that other stuff and now they're like, oh yes, and I can also add this. He knows he's got a solid person who can juggle a lot of things, manage a lot of things, get a lot of things done in a short amount of time, limited resources. And there's, so I don't know. So I always give people the advice of like, keep saying yes until you're in danger of not having life balance or not being able to take good care of yourself. But like, stay busy because more opportunities come your way. (laughs) And is that a philosophy you take on when you look for people as well? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's our crew, anybody at Wayfinding, we do a better job if we've got somebody who does this. And usually this has to be their primary thing that they do but who also does other things because then they're able to bring more resources and connections and ideas and things for the students wow. so yeah I never, I never heard of something like really? that. Well, yeah. yeah I'm gonna try it out and try it out. yeah look for people who are already too tapped out and like give them more things yep <laughs> I mean it works yeah and also maybe how paint paint me a picture of your life you know, what are the other things that you're juggling then when in the first year of WVS when you first joined? Um, actually, that was probably one of the simpler times of my life. Oh. That, you know, eight years ago when I joined the WDS team. Because I, uh, I, I was teaching. I was teaching a full-time job as a professor, like a normal full-time job, college professor. I was doing TEDx, as a, or it was my second TEDx event. And I think that's all I was doing. I was kind of new to Portland still. I had not yet been here for a year. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a whole lot of, I mean, I had some network from doing TEDx or from my work, but I didn't have a lot of other things I was involved in beyond that. So I think that was probably one of my simpler times of life, if there is such a thing. Because then after that, right. I, I kept adding things, right? I've had TEDx for eight years now, oh, wow. right? So I haven't stopped that's doing that. I still do that. Uh, and I, I mean, had that job for up until a couple of years ago, two years ago, three now. And then I added volunteering with another small organization called Super Thank, which is yes. dedicated to radical community gratitude for stuff that matters. Um, and I was doing WDS for five years. And then towards the end of WDS, I started wayfinding. And I'm still doing you know, all those other things. So I think back then was like eight years ago was simple compared to now. <laughs> Well, you definitely have stressed a lot since then, like, on your time. And- oh, my gosh. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so you were saying that you're a college professor, you know, you came to Portland, and, and you, as a college professor, you get a pretty stable paycheck, you know, you get some good benefits, uh, and you get to have morning coffee with your fellow professors and talk about all the good and best things that happen in the classrooms. <laughs> professors don't do that as oh. much as you would think they do. <laughs> <laughs> so... At 2015, or, or maybe even before, like what gave you the impetus to start this new kind of college? 
It was definitely before, because you know you're not just gonna wake up one morning and be like, oh, I'm gonna start. A, I'm gonna start a college today. You know, that's gonna be the thing I do. Um, so I think for me, the impetus started years before that. Um, probably when I was at my most steady, most stable, biggest paycheck, traditional life. Because I, um, this was probably 2003. Oh, BU? Uh, yeah, well, I was at Providence College. So right oh, okay. after I was at Boston University, right. I took a tenure track job at Providence College. So if you're in a tenure track professor job, it's like the gold star of professor yeah. jobs, right? Yeah. It's what you want. You the exactly. Exactly. And so I'm in this job. I'm making like more money than I've ever made in, you know, Anywhere. in my life yeah. ever, you know, before that or after that. So like almost, almost not quite six figures. Uh, I had, I owned a house, so I had a mortgage. Um, and you, you're kind of guaranteed a job for life at this point. I hadn't gone through the tenure process, but I did the, whatever they the pre-tenure process, and all the reviews came back like, oh, yeah, of course, just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be fine. And right around that time, a colleague and I taught, he was pretty um, forward-thinking, radical. He studied a lot of organizational systems and structures. So he, he would do like the big picture systems and structures thing. And I was focusing more on individuals, teams, understanding why people behave the way they do. So yeah, more of the micro stuff and he'd do more of the macro stuff. And he and I got together and we thought, well, what if we, because both of us would talk in our classes with students about like, what, you know, what's college for and what's this all about? And we thought, what kind of class is that? I mean, any kind of class. Right. I mean, it's a conversation that could come up literally in any college class ever. Is like, because you could talk about it from any angle. Like, what's the purpose of grades, or how do we get everybody involved? So he and I decided to do a, like a short seminar, uh-huh. and on this topic on, on education, and we decided to call it "We Don't Need No Education." And we would get together with this the group of students who signed up. I think it was like eight or ten students. And we would get together one night a week in the evening, and we'd have a meal. And over dinner, we'd have conversation. We would have read something or watched something or gone on a field trip. And then we'd talk about it and talk about what it means for education and for people and what we like and what we don't like. Um, And I think that changed something for me because I started really listening to these students who had a lot of thoughts. Most of them were towards the end of their college career like maybe they were seniors, juniors or seniors, when they did this seminar with us. And they had a lot of anger and frustration about... Oh, what are some of the comments, like a feedback kind of? A lot of it was about feeling like they weren't being treated as people. They weren't being seen as whole people. Hmm. That the whole higher education... And this is, you know, a fancy, expensive, four-year private liberal arts college Ooh. that for a lot of them, it was like their top choice college to go to kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And here they are at the end of it, feeling like, well, I just spent four years doing this thing, and I I should know what I'm doing with my life. I should have some resources. I should have some next steps. And I don't. And what I have instead is this piece of paper with all these little check marks on it and letter grades. And I have, like, tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Mm -hmm. And they were pretty angry because they thought that by going to college they were going to get a lot of support and a lot of help figuring out like who they wanted to be in the world and how to 
what they wanted to do afterwards and get help started doing it. And here they are at the end and they feel like they got gypped. They didn't get any of those things. And that the whole thing was just sorting them the whole time. Because now they're ranked on like their GPA and their grade and how are they in an honor society or are they not? And they, and they're looking back realizing, Oh, this is my whole life. My whole life was about my grades or my SAT scores or my ACT scores. And then my major and then my grades in my class and now my GPA and now I'm applying for jobs and they're like don't even bother applying if you don't have this GPA and they're like this is crap this doesn't say anything about me and who I am and now they're mad right because they just spent all this time and money and energy and now they're in debt for who knows how long and they didn't get the thing they were searching for so I started I mean I knew that frustration from being a student but what, what really got to me right around then was that I was part of the problem. So let me, right? let me just stop you there a little bit. Um, because you mentioned you, you, you feel the same problem when you went to college for yourself. Um, so how did, how did you figure that part out? Like what struggles did you go through personally to find, um, to be landed into this great job that now, like back then you have? Yeah, I think I, I don't think I had the skills to think that through critically until I was the one, until I was in the professor role, you know, like I, I think like most young people, I went to college cause I was, that's what I was told I was supposed to do. And I'm the oldest of four children. Yeah. And I, as the oldest of four children, it was like, okay, well you're the first child and This is the thing that we do. And all of my siblings after me, like I did exactly what you're supposed to do, right? I go from high school to college to grad school to job. And none of my other siblings did that, partly because they watched me do that and watched me struggle with like, I'm not sure this is the right thing. So, but I don't think I let myself really think about it in a deep, intentional way until I was at the very end of it. Like maybe at the end of grad school, and then maybe I paused it again for a while to be like, okay, let me see if I can get a job doing this thing. Because I loved teaching. Right. I was like pretty good at it. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I, so as long as I was doing that activity, everything was wonderful. It was only when I paused and stepped back and really reflected on it and started listening to these more macro conversations that I realized this isn't, this isn't what I want to do or it's not the way I want to do it. And I don't think it's the way any of us should be doing it. Mm. But I don't think I paid any attention. I mean, I did this traditional things. Like I picked a college because I was told to. Step it under the rock. Yeah. And I changed my major a few times, but yo, yeah. Three times, I think. (laughs) So the the different majors that, well, at the beginning I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I first started studying like, uh, like history and criminal law sorts of stuff. And then, um, and then after that I picked, so that lasted like a one semester. And then I switched to business, which, uh, was okay. I actually ended up keeping that one, but, uh, it it was a general enough major, but then, but really what I ended up doing was psychology So once I took a psychology class and realized, no, that's what I really like, I ended up, psychology was the third thing I chose, and that was the one I ended up sticking with. And then I did grad school in that, and then I I taught, I always taught in business departments, but I was teaching psychology. I was teaching management, organizational behavior, leadership, those kinds of things. And so coming back to um, uh, the impetus, 
um, you hear all the students, um, they're frustrated. Um, and you have this class, you, you throw out this seminar, uh, is, I mean, we call it a seminar, two hours, open, open conversation. Right. Um, and that got you thinking, um, you know, what happened? What, what, how, how was the, the build up? That's when I would say that that's what the first time I started really listening, like listening to students, listening to what was going on around me and listening to, so I was probably 10 years ago. It was probably 2005, six, 2006. Um, that's 12 years ago. Wow. So, okay. So I, maybe I'm a slow learner. I don't know. Cause I had to, I had to listen for like a lot of years, I think, um, at first I was listening just to students, but then I started noticing things about the way the system is run. Um, first, the system of colleges, like the college I was at, how did that get, how did that decisions get made? Um, who was really at the center of things? Who was really most important? All of the, they all say like students first, right? Where students are at the center of everything we do. Students are the most important. When you, when you really look at how decisions get made and how resources get spent, I felt like a lot of it wasn't really about the students. And so I had a, an experience um, where that really made it super obvious to me and can, made can me... Can you give me an example? Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. I, I probably shouldn't tell the whole story. Oh, yeah. Please leave any names out and, yeah, yeah. you know... The, it's, it's a colleague of mine was having a romantic relationship uh, with a student, okay. which I don't necessarily yeah. have any issue sure. with as like th- these things happen yeah. that's fine but um i i did have problems with um sort of power dynamics and manipulation and things like that and were this to happen now uh in the me too in the era of the me too movement this would have never gone the way it went mm-hmm. back then 10 12 years 10 years so ago so he was investigated by the university and I was called in among many others of my colleagues to testify about what we knew and what we had seen and all this. I was close with both him and the student. And I knew that, I mean, I knew that it was happening because they both told me it was happening. Oh, okay. So I, it was not a question of whether it was happening. It was, they wanted to know like, well, the university was trying to figure out whether it was happening. And um, I got called in and I shared what I knew anything I'd seen or heard or been told. Uh, and they, this went on for several months where they called in a lot of people and they investigated this. And as part of that, it came out that this was the third time they were investigating him for the same behavior. With different students. Different know. students over the years, yeah. And in the end, nothing happened. In the end, those of us who got called in to testify had um, a couple of us ended up having administrators sitting in on our classes to make sure that we weren't doing things we shouldn't have been doing, sort of like this intimidation sort of a thing. And he kept his job, and as far as I know, he's still there, and nothing ever happened to him. And nothing ever, and even worse, the student got, like, was not helped or supported or protected or any of that. And those of us who were asked to share what we knew were treated pretty horribly. And that's what made me realize, oh, this system uh, is set up to sort of protect its own, right? So it's like, this is a tenured faculty member who's been there a lot of years, who's a white male with some privilege in this system, and he was going to get the better end of the deal, no matter what anybody said or did or whatever else. Again, I don't think that would happen right now in the era of the Me Too movement. Right. I think that would turn out quite different. Yes. 
But in the conversations I had with administrators and with the legal counsel at the at the college, it made me realize that this isn't that the way that what colleges say they're about and what they actually do. There's a lot of disconnect there. Mm. And so I just for my own like I mean, from at that point in my life, I was in my now I guess I was 30. Okay. And I had gone straight through everything, right? I went to high school, I went to college, I went to yeah. grad school, I got a job, I got a tenure track job, and I just I'd never stopped and paused to think about what am I doing? What is my purpose? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. And so I took a year off. I okay. resigned pretty suddenly. Right. Um you don't resign at like the end of an academic year. You don't because that's not how the hiring cycle goes. Right. So I resigned in March, I think. Uh and May was the end of the semester and so I didn't have another job lined up. So I said, well, I'm just going to give myself a year off and I'm going to take a break. And I moved across the country to a place where I didn't know anybody, where I could sort of reset myself mm. and really think about why and what it is I'm doing and what I want to be doing. Mm. And I read at that time, I started reading a lot of books, um, watching movies, doing things like this about higher education system. And in particular, um, alternative education models, mm. mostly at the K through 12 level. Okay. Because there's not a lot at the higher education level. Yeah. Um, so sort of a chance to like pause and reflect and really think about this stuff. And it was also hard. That was... Do you have any allies along your journey? Um, some, yeah. I had people who understood and agreed with the things I was observing because they were observing them too. In some cases, they knew them long before I did and they were like, well, it's about time you started noticing these things. Um, What they didn't agree with, though, was my decision to leave. Mm. Uh, And my family at the time, I remember having a really strange conversation with my dad back then because, like I said, I owned a house, I had a mortgage, I had the job everybody wants, that I got to keep for life if I wanted. Um, I had the biggest paycheck I was ever going to have in my life. And I was basically saying, yeah, I'm, I don't want any of that. I would rather have purpose or I would rather have something that I feel like is adding value. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's just not the family background I came from. Mm -hmm. So, um, my dad definitely didn't understand and said, I think you're making a huge mistake. Don't do this. And I did it anyway, but and so I had a lot of friends who s- agreed with me, saw the same things I saw, but thought I was making a bad choice to as to to walk away right. because of it. Uh, so that was so that was hard because of but that. Do you frame it as you're walking away, or do you frame it as I'm taking a break? Um, I don't remember at the time. It was probably both. Right. All I knew was I needed to get away from that place. Yeah. Like that, that city and that job and that place and those people, um, because it was too much to see that, like what it it really was and what it said it was and what it actually was Mm -hmm. didn't match the, the extent to which it didn't match was so severe Mm -hmm. that, and by then I had been listening to students enough to know that faculty members are part of the problem Mm -hmm. in generally speaking with this system of them feeling like they're just being sorted and judged and rated and graded um, that faculty members are at the like are the ones doing it and there are ways to do it with compassion and kindness and understanding and tearing down the power dynamic 
and the fear associated with it and the judgment associated with it. Um, but most people don't, most faculty don't do that. And you're not rewarded when you try to do that. Oh yeah, I mean the incentive system is just not structured that way, right? Um, so you have some sort of a seed of an idea that this is something wrong. Uh, from, but from, doing, from, from knowing something is wrong, running away from it, yeah. to doing something that you want to, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a huge gap, <laughs> right? And, and even, even then knowing how you want it to, to look like or the idea you want to um, sort of bring to the world, there's also the personal doubt that you need to go through. Do you have any of that moments or anything that you need to work through yourself? Uh, or you have great people like Chris that just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just, yeah, that's just how we do it. I mean, never ever in my life did I think I wanted to be an entrepreneur or like a, to somebody to start something. That's not really, that, that was never an, a thought. In fact, it was probably a year after I started wayfinding that I got invited to speak at a thing on you know for women entrepreneurs and that was the first time it really occurred to me that I was an entrepreneur after I had art you know because that's not really what I thought of labels anyway myself doing exactly and so um I think that the for me that gap was filled with I mean, I took the year off and I missed teaching a lot. I real, realized that that really is the thing that brings me joy. And it is my, it was at the time, my highest, best contribution to the world was to, even within the flawed system, to be a ray of hope and a light and to help students really break that down for themselves and find their own purpose for being in it, even if it meant that they're going to stay in it and, you know, have to finish out whatever, like, whatever higher education journey they're on. So... Uh, I went back to it, but I went, when I went back to it after that year break, I went back to it quite differently, philosophically. I had a really different uh, approach, and I sort of turned over the class to the students. So they had a lot more say in what we did and how we did it, and they got to decide their own grades, and I, stopped, I took myself out of those roles and put them in those roles mm. so that they were empowered to do all that. Um, in the context. And I was more of like a facilitator of creating a learning community where we could all get something out of it. Um, and so I think for me, it was, I was content doing that for a while until I realized I was running into the same barriers again. Like I could do whatever I wanted in my class, but then they'd still go out into the, they'd go to their next class and it'd be like not, it'd be the opposite of that. Right. And so it wasn't helping enough, I guess. So a couple of years, I'd say probably two years before I left teaching, um, I just got this sense of, and I don't even really know how to describe it. It was almost this feeling of, uh, I, I have to do something. I'm, I was compelled to do something. And I, I remember at the time I was um, kept journals a little bit. I've never been a big journal keeper. Like I, st- I don't keep a journal at all now. Um, but back then I'd keep little bits of journals and I said, I wrote to myself that I don't know the thing exactly that I'm doing next, but whatever the thing is that I'm doing next, it's going to be a big leap. It's going to be something much, much bigger than just changing cities or changing from one college to another, changing a job title. It's going to be something much bigger and much different. Hmm. And then I had to figure out what that thing was going to be. Um, at around that time I met my now very, very good friend, Sean Aiken, do you know Sean Aiken, his work? Mm-hmm. 
he, um, he's Canadian, and he, when he graduated from college, he was at the top of his class. He'd done sort of like, do what everybody says you're supposed to do. He graduated at the top of his class, and he um, realized this frustration, this anger. He says, I have no purpose. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do in my life. Nobody helped me figure this out. I guess I have to do it myself. And he came up with this job, this project called the one week job project Mm. so for one year 52 weeks he did a different job every week in search of his passion in search of his purpose and uh he had a friend who was a filmmaker so his friend was like what i'll just document this who knows what'll happen Mm. he wasn't doing it to document it originally and then they documented it and he ended up with a film and a book out of it and more or less discovered his purpose and passion and it had to do with Um, helping other people find theirs, either through education or through public speaking or what have you. And he and I met and became friends about a year after his project was over. And uh, so we would, sometimes I'd go up to Vancouver and visit him. Sometimes he'd come down to Portland and visit me. And we'd have these very long rambling conversations about higher education and what's wrong. And if we were going to start something, what would it look like? And so the idea originally started as just sort of like a little, um, yeah, like a little, yeah, yeah, exactly. Conversations with Sean and at first was going to be just like a little program, you know, like something students could do the summer before they go to college Mm -hmm. or something that they could take like a semester off, like a study abroad thing where they go away for a semester, figure out their passion and purpose and come back to college. So it started out kind of like that. And, uh, we started mapping this all out and figuring this all out and being like, you know, I don't think this can be done in a tiny little point in time. (laughs) And we realized that the real goal was going to be at least my goal. I shouldn't say that this was Sean's goal because I don't, his goal is to help people figure out what makes them come alive and help them get to doing it. Um, My goal was that plus, uh, I really want to nudge change in higher education. I think we don't do it the way we could be doing it and should be doing it. Mm. And I, so I said, I think we should, what I would like to do is start an actual college that goes through all of the formal, official, everything you've got to do to be an actual legitimate degree-granting college and not just a program because it's too easy to dismiss, oh, that's a cute little program over there that does mm. this thing. But my point is this is what college should be doing. And college isn't doing this. And I don't think every college needs to do this because there's certainly room for the Harvards of the world who don't necessarily do this but prepare people for other sorts of things. That is also important. But we have too many colleges and too many students not getting this out of that experience. Mm. So that would explain so, why you want to go through the hurdle of the accreditation yeah. with uh, OHEC. Uh, That's right. And so Oregon Higher Education Coordinating Commission. Right, exactly. And I'll tell you a secret. I guess it's not going to be that much of a secret okay. after this. Um, I first decided I'm starting my own college. Yeah. I then named it, built my team, and then learned OHEC exists. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know. Right. I mean, who knows? It like, might be a good thing. Who knows? Oh, yeah. If I had known all the things, I would... <laughs> Holy moly. I mean, if you knew all the things you don't know when you're... Forget it. Like, the... That's where dumb luck comes into play sometimes. Exactly, right? And I I mean, nobody nobody I know has ever started a college, right? It's still not a thing, right? It's still not a thing, people, right? So there's not, like, a way to look it up. There's not... You can't Google it. How do I start a college? And find, like, a list of resources or ideas. And there's just no how-to on this. So... 
it was only through having lots of conversations. And finally, I was having this one conversation with this woman who years before had been involved in trying to start a yoga-based college in the state of Oregon. And she said, oh, have you met yet with the people over at OHEC? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) So she's the one who taught me about OHEC, and she introduced me to somebody over there, and I had several very wonderful conversations um, and found out all about their process and whatever. And, of course, we still had time to do all of that. Mm. Um, so we spent one year, which is not very long in the is grand it, scheme. Is it 2015 or is it 2014 they find out about OHAC? Um, let's see. That would have been, well, that would have been 2015. Mm, wow. Okay. So yeah. you, you, you're on a timeline already. Yeah. Yeah. We had already, I'd already convened my founding what ended up being my founding team. We'd already gotten together, had a few conversations. Um, I was, and that's at the same point that I started learning about OHEC and reading up on what all of the different steps were. Um, I went down there in the, they're at the state capitol. They're a, um, they're a state governmental regulatory agency. And so like, they're, they're no joke. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. like, right, they're, they're enacting laws that are passed by the legislature of Oregon yeah. to regulate and govern higher education institutions. So... Uh, I went down to Salem and met with them twice, I think, and then started doing the paperwork and the processes. And uh, it takes it takes a number of months. You submit the thing and then they say, OK, it might take us up to six months to get back to you. And it took them six months to get oh. back to, you know. So you had one try, really? Uh, yeah. And you're not allowed to start recruiting students or doing any of that until, bef- you, have- until you have their approval. Right. So we were able to start. We That was the time when we built the curriculum, we started doing branding, we wrote our creed, um, we started figuring out how we were going to go about recruiting students when the time came, we started looking for buildings, so we did all those things, but it wasn't until they said, this is going to go through, were we able to say, okay, and open our application process. So there was a lot of like waiting and just having to be overly optimistic. So to your question about self-doubt, I am not, I don't, it's not a thing I think about a lot, which is why I struggle with the question. No, I understand. That's like me too. And I, and I think it's, it's not that I don't have it, because I definitely have it, but it shows up in weird occasions. And it, my, my role, once I had a team, once I had a team, my role has been being the overly optimistic, confident person and saying, oh, this is all going to be fine. Trust me, we've got this. Because if I'm not the one doing that, nobody else is going to be the one to it. Because the rest of the team, yeah. you know? you to drink your own Kool-Aid. Right. I have to be the one. And I, and I obviously have to be also realistic and transparent and honest about everything. Yeah, yeah. And so I can say, I, I don't know. I mean, I, all indications seem to be a clear go-ahead, yes, everything's going to be fine with yeah. whatever it is, fundraising or OHEC or student recruitment or whatever. Um, and I have data to back that up or evidence of some sort to back that up, or whatever, when you really don't know what the answer is going to be. You really don't know the outcome until yeah. you get to the outcome. This is just a guess. Right. But I also know that um, my, my founding team was this, like, uh, force of nature. Or some, I don't know. Like, anything that they decided they were going to do, they did. Right. So, like, even the weirdest, strangest goals that we set, we still did them. Well, like, what, what are some of those? I kind of let that... Slip by. <laughs> um, the first, 
the first crowdfunding campaign that we did three years ago, uh, it was my first time running a crowdfunding campaign. Crowdfunding campaigns are very hard. I think people assume, oh, you're, I'm just going to launch this little thing online and everybody's going to give money and it's going to be fine and whatever. The vast, it's like a full-time job. Oh, yeah. And you have to plan months and months and months and months before oh, yeah. you press go. Oh, yeah. And the average, well, most crowdfunding campaigns do not succeed at reaching their goal. It's some, it's less than 50% that even reach their goal. And the average amount of money raised in a crowdfunding campaign is $7,000, or it was three years ago. It's probably less now. Um, and we, we had to make a decision early on. S- people were telling us, I mean, several of these early decisions we made, we often chose the hardest path, right? So people, the place I was working here in Portland at the time, Concordia, um, were really supportive. They, when they found out I was going to start my own college, they said, well, that's great. It's needed. We need more choice in higher education. Why don't you just incubate it here? Use our buildings, use our internet, use our infrastructure, use our legal team, use our HR, t- right. you know? And I said, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do the hard way. Uh, but but why, why, why did you actually turn that down? Because if if my goal is to start a movement to change higher education, I needed to be able to go step outside of an already existing institution and all of its bureaucracies and all of its safety nets mm. and create a thing over here that is legitimate in the same eyes as that is, right? That's approved by heck also just like they are or what have you. And um, be able to say, no, this is a legitimate, also fair way of doing college. Mm. Like you could do it that way or you could do it this way. And I didn't want it to be easily dismissible of, oh, this is a cute thing that this one college in Portland, Oregon is doing. They do this little thing. Great. And the bureaucracy. Like anytime you're in an institution of that size, you've got bureaucratic red tape and a lot of people telling you what you can and can't do. Mm. And I wouldn't have been able to say like, here's my team. I'm hiring all these people. I would have been like, no, your budget is this. And you get to hire one person maybe as an assistant. And you're not going to start a movement with one maybe assistant person. (laughs) Right. So that was the hard way. Mm. Uh, And then when it came to getting the startup money to start the thing, um, I was getting a lot of advice from people saying, oh, just find one or two big donors. Because right. we, we did the math and we figured we needed about $200,000 to, right. to get going for the one year before we had be students. Oh, yeah. I think so, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, faster, I don't... Yeah, probably faster. Yeah. And easier. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I would have had to get some really good introductions, but oh, yeah. probably could have done that. Yeah. So people kept saying, oh, just find a couple of big investors and then start. Uh and our team talked about it, and we realized, again, if what you're really trying to do is start a movement, you need a whole lot of people. Like, you need, peop- you need some evidence that the thing you're, start- you're wanting to start, the conversation you're wanting to get everybody into, is something people actually believe in, agree with, and want to get involved in. Because mm. if you don't know that, then how are you going to do any of the rest of it? So as much as it is getting the $200,000, it's also getting the amount of people that Right. We needed the community. We needed a community to back it. And like in our creed, one of our lines is that we believe community and college should be woven together. Mm. And so when we were going to these foundational beliefs, it doesn't make sense for us to get one or two wealthy people to say, here's some money to start your project. What made more sense to us, which is what we ultimately did, was to get 700 and something people to all give small or medium or 
a couple of cases, large amounts of money, um, and say we're behind this thing and to get the money we needed that way. So for us, it was the harder thing to do for sure and the more uncertain thing to do. And $200,000 in the land of nonprofit organization crowdfunding campaigns is unheard of. We are still to this day the highest funded Indiegogo campaign in Oregon history. We outpaced the previous higher funded campaign by $80,000. You don't you can't, it's unheard of to raise $200,000 in a crowdfunding campaign for something that's not like the coolest cooler or whatever, right? So just so people, uh, to stop people from uh, just running around and thinking that they can raise $200,000. Oh yeah, I don't recommend it. <laughs> I seriously don't recommend Like it's really very, very hard. And well, tell, tell, like give, give me a bit of like wall stories over there. Oh my gosh. Okay. What's oh. the biggest, like, you know, misconceptions or things you need to learn along the way, the mistakes you make along with it? Okay, I'll give three points with crowdfunding, right? Like, yeah. the first thing is, before you launch a crowdfunding campaign, you need to get one-third to one-half of that money, of your goal, pre-pledged in advance. How do you do that? You ask a lot of people, and you get them to pre-pledge, and you tell them you're doing the thing. So one thing we didn't do the first time we ran a crowd, three years ago, my first time doing it, uh, and this is actually on the eve of WDS 2015, um, the year that I was going on stage as the magician to say I'm retiring as the magician to do my own to start my own college. Uh, on that eve, we had probably f- thirty thousand dollars pre-pledged, forty thousand maybe at best pre-pledged, and all of the wisdom we were given by all of the experts would have told us that the most you can launch that campaign for is eighty thousand mm. dollars, the very most, and we were like. Nah, we can do this. We need to. Let's just do it. 200, th- we can do it. And once you press go on that, on Indiegogo, you don't get to change it. Oh. You are stuck. Once you turn it on, and you if, cannot. If you can't get it, you, you. And if you can't get it, you don't get it. Yes. If you can't raise the two, the, your goal, you don't get any of the money. So we were like, nah, whatever. We can do it. And we pressed go on 200,000. And the next day, my mentor saw that we launched it at that. And he called me and he said, you're insane. You're insane. This, you're not going to do this. This is not going, what is your, how are you going to do this? So there's one more story. Right. <laughs> we did it. And, you know. uh, and then the other thing, in addition to the getting the pre-pledges, is all crowdfunding campaigns go through a very similar cycle. You raise about a third of your money in the first week to 10 days. Then you enter what they call the valley of despair. Uh, It's a long period of time where you have very, very little activity. Maybe little trickles of donations coming in, but very, very little. And you've got this thing live, and you're still working really hard. You're still doing stuff every day to try to get it more things happening and it just doesn't happen for a while and then in the last week to 10 days you raise another third of your money so you get like a third at the beginning a third at the end and then a third in these very random spurts in the middle so um ours was no different and going into our last mm, three days of the campaign we were still i think twenty thousand dollars short and didn't know how we were getting there right so on the very, very, very last day, or maybe we had 36 Wait, hours left. Would you have like pulled out 20,000, like take a loan and like just put it in? I didn't have 20,000. I mean, some people do that. Some people do pull out money out of their own pocket as the founder or as the whatever, but I didn't have 20,000. Like for me, that wasn't an option because I didn't have $20,000. So 
Uh, I probably could have called in a favor or something like that and done, done things like that. Um, we did end up actually, we had one, one of our founding team members said I, that he would do that and he would loan 5,000. So that still wasn't going to get us there, but right. he's like, I can do 5,000. So within maybe with 48 hours left to go, we said, I just go ahead, do it because we don't know how else we're getting there. So he put in his 5,000, right. um, which we ended up paying him back and we ended up raising 207,000. Right. So we ended up not needing it, but we didn't know. We didn't know. Right. We thought we needed it because the last day it's me, Tina, Tito, Jefferson, we're sitting at McMinniman's Kennedy School doing like whatever we possibly can to try to make it to this little last bit. Um, and we get the, Tina's sitting next to me on her laptop and she gets this really random email saying, I'm trying to put through this donation and I can't, it's not working. I keep getting an error message. Can you call me? So Tina calls this person and she's like, error message. Why would you get that error message? It's very weird. Um, and w- one of the things we learned through crowdfunding is that if you're using a debit card, if you're trying to take out of a bank account, a bank account will limit you to $4,999 of a withdrawal in a single day. So if you try to give $5,000 from a bank account to a crowdfunding campaign or anything else, it will reject it. And this woman was describing that basic problem. And I was like, there's no way that some random person who we have not asked <laughs> is in the process of trying to give us $5,000. Okay. We thought there's no way. Right. So Tina calls this person and sure enough, that's what was happening. And it turns out, uh, it's like, hi, Robbie. <laughs> it turns out it's the mom of a student I had had at one of the classes I had taught multiple years before. And I had made a huge impact on her daughter's life. Um, with the class, the passion-based leadership class that I taught. And the daughter had been following along on all this, unbeknownst to me. And her mom happened to have just sold a house and had some extra revenue and said to her daughter, like, I want to do something good with it. What do you think? And her daughter said, I think you should do this. Mm. And Robbie has now gone on the Camino, learn and explore trip with us, Mm. not once, but twice, and continues to support us and is going to be at graduation and like knows all of our graduating students. And it started because she was like, I want to do something good with this money I have from this house sale. What should I do? And so in our last 24 hours, she came through and gave this. And we, without her, we would have not made the goal. Was your stomach like quenching? It was amazing. Unbelievable. And Tina and I sat there in shock going, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe that just happened. Like, and we made our goal with it. Like, I don't know. I think we had something like 10 hours to spare or 12 hours to spare, which also is unheard of, right? right? So we were sitting there going, oh my gosh. So we're at McMenamin's Kennedy School and we just reached our goal and we watched the thing tick over on the Indiegogo and we're like, holy crap, right. it, that just happened. And then, and then it kept coming, you know, because then we got another like 7,000 or whatever. Yeah. So, so it's like these jo- high, high joys and unexpected things and things that happen out of the blue that you're just so excited about. Oh, and yeah. these valleys of despair that are like, Really oh, hard, really, yeah. really hard. So I, I, A, I don't recommend crowdfunding for most things. It's very hard. Right. And B, don't ever try to raise $200,000. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I really don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. 
That's the, I haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about some of those stories in a really long time. So oh, thank, yeah. thank you for that. Well, yeah, well, also thank you for, 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 for telling, you know, yeah. like recommending for not. <laughs> yeah. Unless, you know, I mean, at your own risk. Yeah. yeah, do it at your own risk. I think yeah. there are certainly times when it um, will serve you well. Like for us, it was the perfect, it was the right decision to make. It was the harder thing to do. Um, but for what we wanted to do, we needed community. Mm-hmm. And it's that campaign gave us our founding community that has gotten th- us through these first several years. And so right now we're doing some things to try to expand that community yeah. um, for the next stage of growth. But without those original founders, like, and I know it can't, it's not viewable on the right. video right now, but right he- on this wall above us right here are all of the names of those 700 people. Yeah. So every day we look at the names of those 700 people and recognize that we wouldn't be here were it not for those people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And since we're on the topic of money. Oh, my favorite topic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you have a little uh, tiny house uh, park outside your friend's place. I read somewhere. I'm not sure if I can trust anything on the internet these days. Right. <laughs> somewhere nearby. Yeah. yeah. Um, but how does your you know, financial game plan look like you know, for, for securing and you know, maintaining your personal finance while taking the risk of doing something that might not work? Right. Um, generally speaking, I think we're past the stage where it we're pretty sure it's working now. Right, right. But back in then, the yeah. Uh, so I feel really fortunate to have had just a couple of really good mentors in my life. Mm. Uh, and I have one very, very dear friend who I could call up and ask the most random piece of advice about anything and know that he'll give me solid advice that's thought out from multiple perspectives and whenever possible from his own personal experience. And he'll tell me the goods and the bads. Mm. And when I was starting, he's, he's, he was on my founding team. He is on my founding board. He is still on my board. Uh, and I keep him because I need his advice and his sound. Um, Does his name start with C? Uh, no, but oh. he's fantastic too. <laughs> my board chair, Charlie. Yeah. Oh, he's so great. I didn't know Charlie back. I mean, I knew Charlie a little bit back when I started wayfinding, yeah. but I got to know Charlie much more in the years after. Mm-hmm. Um, so... No, this is Jefferson. Jefferson. Okay. And Jefferson has started multiple other startup entrepreneurial nonprofit ventures wow. in his life. And so when I said, I convened a very small group of people and said, uh, and we sat in a student's apartment at Concordia. Uh, and I told them, I said, I'm, I, I want to quit my job and I want to start a college and I'd like your advice. Can you all talk to me about why this is a good idea, why this is a bad idea? Give me everything you can think of. And I just listened to them for a very, very long time. Uh, and one of the pieces of advice he gave me um, was that if I could do it, and it was going to take a lot of work to figure this out, but if I could, uh, to not take a salary myself for the first one to two years of starting my nonprofit. People is your biggest expense in any organization, in any sort of startup venture. And he said, if I could, by whatever means necessary, um, not pay myself, it would enable me to pay other people immediately 
and bring a team immediately because I'm going to do it no matter what. I would do, I would do, and I still would do whatever it took. This is my life's work. This is my legacy. This is my passion. I'll do anything I have to do. Paid, not unpaid, doesn't matter. But to ask other people to do that is a bit of a stretch. My my original founding team was all volunteers for for at least six months. Everybody was a volunteer. And then I paid one person and then I paid two people and then I paid three people and then I paid, right? I think I was up to paying 10 people, 11 people before I paid myself. So for two years, for the first two years, so the entire year of planning plus the entire year of the first year with students, um, I didn't get paid. Mm -hmm. And I only, I've not even... Yeah, and I've, not, I've only been paid since September, so it's not even been a year that I've been being paid now. Mm. Um, and his advice was really, really good. It was also real. it's really hard to follow because, like, how are you going to intentionally go into... I, I started out with pledging one and a half years of no salary, and I ended up making it two full years with no salary. Um, and, and he was right because it, it enabled me to pay other people. It enabled me to... And he said, there are going to be some hard times. There are going to be some times when you're asking way, 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 way too much of other people. And do it anyway. And, no. and because, well, he no. said, do it and you're going to have to. You right. have no choice. Right. Ask that of them. And one of the things you're going to have backing you up is that you aren't getting paid. Mm. So they know that you're not personally benefiting from any of the things that you're, right? right? The easy ask. So it, it makes it easier. It still makes it, it's still hard. Um, one of the, so ha- having a tiny house was absolutely essential during that time. I, I've been in my tiny house for uh, eight years. So I, I didn't get a tiny house when I started wayfinding. Oh, okay. I'd already been, right, I'd right. already been living in a tiny house right. for years. And I made that decision years ago, um, at, right shortly after I did that, you know, leave my job, move across the country, mm-hmm. take a year off thing. Because I realized in that move, I only took with me when I moved across the country what could fit in the back of my car. Mm. And I fell in love with the idea of simplicity and simple living Mm. and only having what you needed to have so that you could spend the rest of your time and energy on things that really mattered. So I decided to do the tiny house because of that, because I wanted to spend as much of my time and energy on things that really mattered. Mm. And having a tiny house and a simple life helped me to do that. I don't know that that's the right choice for everybody. I'm sure it's not. Um, but as a single person with no kids, I was able to do that and it worked for me. So I made that choice that came in absolutely essential when I had no salary for two years, mm-hmm. I saved up some money. Right. I worked after I made that decision, I was working for almost a year and I saved as much as I could possibly mm-hmm. save. And it was nowhere near enough. And also, I think that gave you the, um, the one year that you were saving money, gave you the, um, track record of like how can I cut expense like thinking oh, about yeah. that right yeah. and then now maybe the expense cut in half then the the amount of money that you save stretches in two exactly it had to be yeah I had to stretch it and I also did um things that I didn't ever really plan on doing or think about doing What's, what's um so one of the things that I did uh and I, I believe in honesty and transparency and yeah. and using the safety nets that we have such as they are and they're not very good uh, generally in our society in the united states the safety nets that we have in place for people uh, leave a lot to be desired Mm -hmm. but 
when you need them and you find that they're there for you, it's really helpful. So uh, the first thing that I did was after I stopped working, I didn't have any health insurance. Yeah. Uh, so actually, no, that was the second thing I did. But because um, I had I had purchased my own personal health insurance thing for a while and I did that. And then um, I went on the free I went on to Medicaid. So I was on the free health insurance Obama, through the yeah. state. Yeah, through the state of Oregon, because I qualified for it through the Obamacare. So it was great. And uh, I used that for a year and a half. And it was fantastic to have that. Um, the other thing I did was I went into the food stamps program. So I know, right? And it's a thing. I'm like, I'm a college professor Good on you. with a PhD. And it was a very weird barrier. A men- it was a mental block that I had to think through of, do I qualify for this? Under what circumstances do I take this assistance? Because asking for help for me at the time was very, very, very hard. Now I get real good at it. Now I ask people for stuff all the time. Uh-huh. But back then I was like, oh, this is weird. And I'm asking for help, not from a person, but from, in this case, the state of Oregon. Yeah. Um, and I remember my first, you fill out this online thing and then they do a phone call with you. And I remember that first phone call being so nervous and thinking like, am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? And so I just shared with the woman I was talking to my entire story. I said, I'm starting my own college. It's a nonprofit. I left my job. I'm taking no salary. This is all my situation. I might not qualify for this. I don't know what you guys' criteria is on your end. And if I don't qualify, no problem. Mm. But here's my scenario. And she said, no, it sounds like you qualify. Um, And so for about a year, little over a year, I got food assistance. And so I would get, I don't know, it was just under $200 a month for my groceries. And that helped so much. Do you make it work? Right? I made it work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was more than I needed because oh, I have wow. a simple life and a tiny house. and a... That's awesome. So I was able to... Do you make it work in a sense whereby, like, do you feel that, do you feel very cached in or do you feel like, yeah, $200 is good enough? It's like, it's... Oh, no. It was plentiful for me because as a single wow. person, but that, it was plentiful. And I, um, I even was able to stockpile, you know, I'd buy extra food so that when I when I didn't have that available to me anymore and I was still on a very tight budget, I had some like rice and things like this that I could use. So I, I feel like, I feel like our sense of what we need is inflated. Like I was able, I mean, I think I had saved up something like $15,000 and I had to live off of that for two years. And you did? And I did. For two years, I lived off of $15,000. And I still paid my rent, and I still had um, credit card debt that I had to pay, right. and student loans that I paid sometimes, and other times were in deferral. And uh, I got help from the state of Oregon for health care and food, and I made it work. So I feel like, I think a lot of times these barriers about the financial need are in our own minds. And if you really pause and think about, and maybe... I got an app on my phone where I tracked every dime that I spent for that last year that I was working. So I knew exactly how much money I spent on things, knew exactly where I could cut, um, and started that process of simplifying and cutting while I still had an income so that it wasn't such a huge shift for me. Um, So I I feel like like we all have the power to do that if we choose to make it a priority and a focus for us. Mm. And I think a lot of times we just don't. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to, and it's easier to not shine a spotlight on those um, unconsciously made decisions. Yeah. 
right? So the tiny house thing has been great, both from the simplicity and, perspective and, and financial. Stretch of two years. Two years. How, tell me, you break, you even break down of a month. Like, how, how does a month of expenditure look like for you? Um, I, what I ended up finding out by tracking every dime that I spent right. for a year was that I need a, somewhere between nine hundred and eleven hundred dollars a month for my basic for gas, groceries, car insurance, rent. Um, a little bit of money for, well, food, um, a little bit of money for like doing bonus things so that I could still have some sort of a life. life. Yeah. Um, travel is really important to me. I do a lot of travel hacking. That could be a whole nother conversation. Yes. Uh, so travel was a thing I wasn't willing to give up. So I found ways to still get free hotel points and airline miles and keep traveling, yeah. which still cost me a little bit, but yeah. very, very little. Um, so somewhere between 900 and 1100 a month was what I needed. But that doesn't add up to 24 months, does it? No. So I had to stretch and I had to find other ways to do things. Um, so for a little while, uh, thankfully, tiny houses happened to get real popular during that time. So sometimes when I would be traveling, I could rent my house on Airbnb and bring in a little bit of money, not a lot, but a little bit so that I could use that to pay rent yeah. for some of the months um, or to pay for the travel or to pay for food or what have you. Um, so small things like that. And then finally, at the very, very, very end, I ran out of money. I ran out of money three months before uh, I was going to start getting uh -oh. paid. And I sold my car oh, and wow. bought another used cheaper car and got a little bit of cash back from that process, which got me through the final three months. So, but it kind of was unexpected at the end because I was like, oh, wait, no, I have three months to go and I now literally have no money. So, um, but my, my other goal was that I didn't want to worry about it because I had enough to worry about starting a college and managing all of the people and all of that process and all of the stress that came with that. So I needed money, my personal financial situation to not be a source of stress for me. And that is a mental game. Like that's an entirely mental game because I... By all standards, I should have been highly, highly stressed about my own financial, personal, yeah. personal financial situation, and I mentally made the choice not to be. Well, I think you you you, you did a good straddle, right? I think, you, you, like on the one hand, you had the one year to prepare and like cut the expenses, so yeah. you feel a little bit more secure in that sense, and you just save up a bunch. So at least you know, like okay, well, this is the amount, you know, and multiply by this amount of months this should be it and also you have that leg whereby oh if all else fails maybe i could go back for a year and put it on you know you never know but yeah, that never occurred to me oh okay <laughs> never thought of like oh i'll just pause the project and go you know because it wasn't going to be my like my personal financial situation wasn't i would not let that be the thing that kept this from going right or you teach part-time could have mm, but it ne never occurred I mean, maybe at some point it occurred to me, but no, it never was a real, uh, like a real option for it. It never occurred to me as like, oh, I really should, like I never looked for part-time teaching jobs or anything. So n sure. no. Okay. What about you put it true for like two years? Yeah, two years. Good on you. Good on you. Yeah. And to be fair, I still don't make very much and, and nobody at Wayfinding at the moment does. We made the decision early on when we started it. And, and this is going to have to shift and evolve and change over the years. Um, but we made the decision early on that everybody would be paid the same wage. Uh, and at first it was literally exactly the same wage. For the 30 to 35, I saw it. 
Yeah. And at the beginning, literally every person, some people were full time, some were half time, some were three quarter time, Mm -hmm. but they all got paid exactly the same full time annual salary, just prorated based on what, because there was no way of distinguishing whose role was like everybody was doing everything and we were all equally important and without any of us. So it's also one of my personal gripes about the way higher education runs is that the administrators, the people at the very top levels of the organizations are paid lots and lots and lots and lots of money um, in most cases. And then the next level is like faculty who are often paid way less than administrators, but a lot more than staff. It's like the closer you get to interacting directly with supporting students, the less you are compensated for that. And that seems backwards to me and wrong. So we made the decision that we weren't going to do it that way, that no matter what your role at Wayfinding, you're paid literally exactly the same at the beginning. And now we have a little bit of distinction, mostly based on years of experience, but not entirely based on that. And so everybody's within the same like $3,000 range. Um, And it's going to stay that way. You're talking about yearly annual. Yeah, yearly annual salary. So I think right at this very moment, and this is all about to change because we're entering a new fiscal year, but I think the person who we somebody makes thirty thousand dollars a year yeah. and somebody makes thirty four. Mm. So I guess that's a four thousand dollar range at the moment. Yeah. And then that's all shifting up where everybody goes up to like thirty two to thirty six or you know, the whole band shifts up because right. of cost of living increase. Um, yeah. And we all get a small monthly stipend to help with health insurance and it's the same whether you're full-time or part-time but we all get a very small amount to help pay for that and we so it's just like equal all the way through Um, and that was an important value that we wanted to reinforce from the beginning so I still make very very little Uh, we all do and I make no more than anybody else on the team as the president so I still and now thankfully I have three years of experience of living on a very, very, very tight budget. Right. And so now I'm finding myself able to pay off all this debt that like that I hadn't been able to pay off wow. before when I was making twice as much as I'm making How now. Crazy is that, that it's amazing. The less yeah. money I have, the more I'm able to pay off debt. Oh wow. Yeah, well interesting. Everybody should try this. Yes. Try do try this at home. <laughs> right? <laughs> Not the crowdfunding, but yes, the paying off yeah, the debt. Get, with, get a, uh, get a lower ask for job. a lower paycheck. Yeah. And then, no, no, don't do that. But maybe you restrict yourself. I don't know. Yeah. So, so I feel that a good way um, to, to, get, uh, to get introduced to the Wayfinding Academy so would be imagine yourself, you're at a dinner at a French place, and then, and then you don't know like most of these people in this dinner table, right? And they're like, hey, you know, actually your daughter is going to a college. And Michelle runs a pretty unconventional college, right? And then you're, now you, are, you, know, you have five minutes to explain like, what you do and see if it might be a good fit to this other person's daughter. Mm-hmm. Like, what would that sort of conversation look like? Is the daughter present? No. Or is it just the parent? Just the parent. Okay. What I would start with then is I would... And I guess I would do this if the parent, if the daughter was present, but I would start, but I would, no, it's probably about the same. It's just who I would ask. Um, The first thing I would do is start with questions. So I would ask, uh, I would want to find out a little bit more about the daughter and what the daughter was interested in and what the daughter's experience that thus far with education has been. Mm -hmm. And what are the things that so far in this daughter's life has made her really excited or thrive or happy or come alive and depending on the answers to that I would try to figure out whether wayfinding was or wasn't a good fit for them Mm. 
So, because um, wayfinding is not the right fit for everybody. Right. If, if somebody wants to take a very um, traditional path, we, we've had a couple of times when somebody would apply to us and they say that what they really want to do with their life is become uh, an accountant. Or one person said a forensic psychologist. Right. And I thought, like, there is a very clear career path to do that. And if you already know that, you should probably just do that path. Right. Like, just go for that. If, though, the parent tells me things like, well, she's not really sure. Mm. You know, may, she's taken a couple of college classes, but they don't really work out for her, and she's not very excited about it. And her interests are sort of all over the place. Like, maybe it's, there's some interest in art and there's, or something creative. And there's also um, an interest in social justice causes or being of service to the world or making a positive difference. Or, you know, it's this hodgepodge of a bunch of things that there's no very clear path to. Mm-hmm. I would say, well, it sounds like wayfinding might be a good fit because that's and that's how our application process starts with prospective students is. We, the first question is, who are you right now? What are you interested in? The application they fill out for us is a lot of those, it's a lot of introspective thinking questions. We're told that it's a really challenging application. Oh, yeah. I heard it's only 10 questions and people freaked out. That's right. But it's because it's like, it, we ask things like, well, what's been your journey so far with education to get to this point? Why do you want to go to college at all? Why do you think you want to go to wayfinding? What are some three big questions you have right now that two years from now you would like to be further along in your thinking about? Um, what's a community that you've been part of that's really changed your perspective on the world? Um, what's a time when you had a deeply held belief and you got some new information about it that changed the way you thought about that particular topic? Like, these are not easy questions. But we also want... Even they have the experience to have those... Oh, they do. Questions. They do. But they've never been asked these questions. Oh. Most of us at that stage of our life are not asked these sorts of questions. We're asked really superficial things about, tell me a time when you were a leader or what, you know? Right. And so there, I don't think we ask deep enough questions and give young people enough credit for being able to have those answers within themselves. Because I guarantee you, I read these applications all the time and I have these conversations with young people all the time. They absolutely can answer these questions. Those answers are inside themselves. It just takes them a while to tap into it because nobody asks them these things. Mm. And that is where I think, so it also tells us if they're not willing to engage in that process, they're not going to be a good fit for us mm-hmm. because that's what we ask them to do for the two years that they're with us. So the, the entire program is designed, so the, the degree that students get at the end of wayfinding is in self and society. So they get an associates of art, associate of arts degree in self and society. So half the stuff that they're doing with us is self. It's introspection. It's internally focused. It's who are you? What are your values? Who do you want to be in the world? What does the good life mean to you, right? So you have to be down for doing that. You have to be down for willing to look and think about these, look inside and think about these things deeply. Um, If they're not willing to do that first application with us, they're going to have a a rough two years, right? And then the other half of what they do is society focused. So it's really studying what's going on in our world right now, both at the local level and at the global level. And we, when we started Wayfinding, Obama was president. We had no reason to believe that that was about to shift. So that's another interesting tidbit in the history of Wayfinding. Like our first, our start, our planning year and the first half of our first year 
Obama was president. Mm. And the last year and a half, that's not been the case. Right. And that has changed the conversations and the urgency with which we have the, com- mostly the urgency oh, wow. with which we have these conversations in our curriculum and in our building. So I think for people who were here at the very beginning and in the planning stages and being like, oh, this all sounds nice. Having a class on communicating effectively, having a class on engaging with information, that sounds lovely. Everybody should know how to do effective research and get at real answers. But when the first time that class was taught was when Donald Trump was sworn in as president. And so now there's a whole segment on that class, and there has been from the beginning, about fake news and figuring out what you can trust and what you can't trust and how to make those decisions for yourselves and not to listen to all the things that other people are and how to go out and you have a question you want to answer and how do you find sources that are intentionally going to give you alternate information to the information you would naturally be exposed to in your own Facebook feed or news or whatever, right? That we didn't think about. Like we didn't think, oh, we're going to have to address this from the very beginning. So... Half of what they do in the curriculum is this society-focused stuff. So it's local stuff in the city of Portland and the state of Oregon. It's national stuff that's going on, and it's international stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do the entire time with the curriculum is having them grapple with both of those things at the same time and find a way to put the two things together so that they're figuring out who they are and what the world needs and what's their particular specific place in that. And so a lot of what they do with us is self-directed and customized for each individual student because it's got to be that little sweet spot in the middle. So one student might decide that their sweet spot is going to be creating compassionate conversations through art that help change the world. And somebody might decide that they want to tackle the problem of toxic masculinity in the way young men are raised right now in the United States. Mm. And somebody else might decide that through their writing, they want to um, help people who have had abusive situations throughout their childhood and as they're growing up, um, connect deeper within themselves and work through some of that pain. So they choose whatever they choose, and it's their own niche, Hmm. and we help them cultivate that niche while providing these foundational things that help them discover those things both at the personal and societal level. That sounds really complicated when I say it like that, I realize. So to the parent, I would have probably said some of those things, but what I'd be asking is like, what is it about that? Like, what does your daughter care about? Like, who is she right now? What's been her life story? Do we have any evidence that the, higher, the traditional education system is not a good match? Has she already tried it? Has she done homeschooling? Has she done a gap year? Like, is there something that indicates that opting out of the traditional path is a thing that's probably a thing that's right for her? And then it's like, what is she interested in doing? What are her passion areas? Is it art? Is it social justice? Is it whatever? And is there something else that's a better match for her? Like, is a gap year better? Is going to a trade school better? You know, is something else better than a wayfinding? And if it's this blob of, I don't know what I want to do, but it's like this plus this plus that plus this, and there's no clear path, then wayfinding probably really is a good match. Because... Uh, how interesting that you frame it like that. Although I understand where you're coming from, is you're sort of like the wayfinding can is this is where it fits along the spectrum of the different uh, solutions for educations, right? Uh, and but what's funny is that I see it as, I mean, this is the basics. Like if you can't get this, like I, I feel like like this is like almost mandatory. Um, and if I were to do school again, uh, I would I would do this, right? Because I feel that. Like 
if you can, if you, you can learn how to learn, yeah. that's like the, a tremendous big meta skill. Uh, and, or, and if you can, you know, communicate effectively, that's a huge meta skill. Um, and I, I, I call this the multiplier skill. So if you can say, uh, let's say Jamie Oliver, which, which, you know, who knows, maybe he might be a good, great cook, but he's not the best cook in the world. But he has great charisma, great communication, and then he can cook. And I think like that, that sort of multiplication makes him who he is. So I sought that category of you know, what, this, what a lot of curriculum that you have to do under the category of multiplier skills. Yeah, I think that sounds right to me. And the other thing I'd add to Jamie Oliver is he has a why. Like he has a purpose behind what he's doing and why he's doing it. Um, and I might be a little out of date, but my most recent understanding is that a lot of what he's doing is to try to fight childhood obesity issues in the United States. And... I think without that why, that's hard. Uh, and so the other thing, obviously, that's... I shouldn't say obviously, I mean... Right, right, right. But Assumptions. Well, I, I mean, it seems obvious to me, right. but um, wayfinding, a wayfinding student finds their why. Like, all of our students who are about to graduate in two and a half weeks, whoa, uh, they know their why. Hmm. Like, you could ask them... Like, you could ask them the boring question of, like, what are you going to do next? And they can answer it. They don't love that question, what they like better is being asked, like, who are you now that you want to continue to be mm-hmm. after you leave the wayfinding program? Mm-hmm. And what is your why? What is your passion? Um, we also talk about it in the term of ikigai, mm-hmm. the concept of it's that, like, what people are willing to pay you for, plus your passion, plus what the world needs, but all these things, magic, come together. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can answer that question. Mm-hmm. And I think... F- and I guess I agree with you on that in your this is the basics comment. Oh, yeah. Because even if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or an accountant or something for which there's a very, very clear must use traditional higher education path to get there, uh, I still think if you were to do something like wayfinding first and understand your why and understand your purpose, so like why do you want to do accounting? What do you want to contribute to the world through that particular set of skills? And how do you find your niche within that that brings you joy and brings you purpose and brings you passion? Even if to an outsider, it just looks like, well, you're an accountant. There's still a lot of value in that. And I think everybody would benefit from doing something like this first. Um, it's hard to explain it to uh, uh, others about. Right. Yeah. And I only, I only learn about all this like once I've sort of reached a stage where I'm like, financially comfortable and then we're like well actually these skills are pretty good (laughs) absolutely yeah um i'm gonna i'm gonna take a left turn over here um why do you want to do why do you want to put wayfinding under the category of non-profit and would that might change might not down the road i don't think it'll ever change um part of the reason is because um we're having a little bit of a crisis right now. Maybe that's not... <laughs> you can't have a little crisis. Right. Um, maybe you can. Right now with higher education in a couple of ways. Uh, one of the ways is that you've got a lot of for-profit higher education institutions mm-hmm. where a lot of people are making a lot of money and not serving students very well. And a lot of them happen to be um, going bankrupt, going under, just stopping to exist. Right and have taken advantage of students and their families. And so anything that 
so it, that was a non-starter for me. Starting a for-profit college um, would have automatically placed me in that huge skepticism bubble. And I was already going to be in like a, wait, what is this kind of bubble? Because it's like a brand new college that didn't exist before. And there are none in the, uh, in the country like us. So like a private nonprofit liberal arts two-year college yeah. is not a, it's not a category really. Oh, yeah. Uh, like the state of Oregon doesn't have this category. They had to figure out what to do with us when they approved us with the OHEC, right? Yeah. So, um, so that was just a non-starter. The other thing about nonprofits that they have going for them is they have that community element built in. So you're legally obligated by the IRS if you're going to be a 501c3 nonprofit organization yeah. to take to solicit donations. You must have support from your community mm-hmm. in order to exist. On some level. Now, our financial model, and you can have me tell you lots or little, I will start with little, okay. about financial model, yeah. but you, our financial model has about 40% of our revenue mm-hmm. coming from the community, okay. which is not common in higher education. That's not the way most of it runs. Mm. Um, as a nonprofit organization by IRS regulations, we could have it be much, much less than that, mm-hmm. like a the nonprofit college I used to work for before this was 95% of their budget came from tuition dollars from students. Mm -hmm. So they had a much smaller amount of community support, right? But embedded in the IRS designation is that you have to have some. And because community and college woven together is so important to us, Mm -hmm. that gives us like that, that mandate that we can't ever neglect that. Mm -hmm. So for us, that felt important. And do you think that being a nonprofit, you know, would have any problems with like student unions or for, for the teachers, I mean, uh, and the teacher unions? And also, does it have any conflicts with, um, you know, let's say I, I would like to um, pay someone a little bit more because like they are more expert or like. No, no, you could still do you can still do any of that if you want to do okay. any of that. The nonprofit doesn't restrict you in any sorts of ways like that. I mean. Uh, my information's so out of date, and I'm not going to get this exactly yeah, right. Sure. But it's like the the CEO of the United Way was making several million dollars a year. Yeah. Like you can pay people whatever you want to pay, even as a nonprofit. Right. Um, and you can have, I mean, most of the faculty unions that I've seen in, at colleges are in nonprofit colleges or in public colleges. So all of that still exists. So it doesn't really change that. It's more of a philosophical decision about who do we want to be in the world. Not about necessarily the way we function. Okay. And what do you need to do to be qualified to be a nonprofit? Um, you have to get IRS approval to be a nonprofit. Right. So the federal government decides um, it's mission based. And so what the government, every year when we file our end of year tax returns, yeah. the federal government, the IRS, looks at all of that to decide are we still doing things that are in clear alignment with our mission? Mm. And if we deviate from our mission, they can take away our nonprofit status. So right now, if somebody donates to us, they get a tax deduction for that yeah. donation. Um, and if we lose our nonprofit status, that, that all goes null and void. And, but, so the government is making sure that we are staying within the parameters of what we have stated as our mission. Got it. Um, so if we were to start doing a whole bunch of crazy things over on the side, yeah. they'd be like, no. nah, you can't do that, right? Gotcha. So, uh, and some colleges are getting in trouble for stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's move into um, the curriculum. And I want to start uh, like at a very high level um, uh, where there's no grace over here. Right. Yeah. Why do you take on that belief? 
And you know, does that affect the incentive and the motivation to learn? Def- definitely. But I believe it affects it to the positive. Okay. So, um, yeah. So we don't have grades. That didn't also, that never came up as a discussion point for us. Like, it was never like a do we or don't we? Mm-hmm. we it was always a we're not having grades. So we don't have grades. We don't, have, we don't use text, textbooks. We don't have tests. We don't have quizzes, right? Um, everything is project-based. And we do narrative evaluations. So um, grades don't really tell anybody anything about somebody's passion or ability to learn or ability to do things or ability to think for themselves. Um, it turns out to be just sort of a sorting mechanism. And it's pretty arbitrary based mostly on what the faculty member personality and perspective is right and and do you think also it might be because that a lot of the subjects they are teaching here like don't need like grades because you're not like trying to get teach them physics or well they're not that different well we do have we did students took a class on physics physics of everyday things and we have a science technology and society class and so a lot of our classes are not uh not that different than one of the behind-the-scenes thing with the state of Oregon, the OHEC approval, is that we have to still offer, for, to get an associate's degree at the end of this, we still have to have a certain number of credits in the humanities and in the sciences and in the maths and in the writing. And the, like, we don't get out of that. We still have to have that. But we've embedded it and woven it through. Yeah. So we don't have like a science class, a math class, a humanities class, a psychology class, a, right? We have communicating effectively and science, technology, and society and the good life and understanding our world and understanding ourselves and others. So it's all woven through and embedded through. Mm. So we still have all those subjects. And at traditional colleges, they certainly do give grades in all those subjects. But Because grade could also be like a form of a test to know where your understanding of that subject is. But I think that you don't have to have grades to test understanding. I think you have to have some way for the student to share with the faculty member their knowledge on those subjects Mm -hmm. and the faculty member to engage in a dialogue with them to understand where they're at with their learning. I don't think there needs to be a test and a grade. Mm -hmm. So what we do... So we're saying that the grade might just be an easy opt-out might just be an easy opt-out. Yeah, it certainly makes it way easier for faculty members. Right, because you don't need to talk to each one of them. Yeah, you don't have to talk to each student. You don't have to get to know each student. And you get to standardize the mechanism by which they deliver the information to you. Mm. You create one test. You hand it to all of these people. They give you back the exact same thing. You get a key and you get to, right? Mm-hmm. It's way easier. So if I were to look at it from another perspective, um, is that, say, for example, let's take calculus as one of the subjects. Okay. And, and instead of a, a, a standard regular a regular test, I'll, I'll be like, okay, well, let's do some calculus right now. And then we will go through a calculus asse- uh, assessment. Um, and I will then give you a or evaluation. Well, so can I use physics instead as an example? Uh, sure. I think it's the same, right? Okay, so okay. in a traditional college, somebody would take a physics class. They'd study a physics textbook. There'd be lectures on physics. Uh, and then there'd be a test where they have to prove that they can calculate things using equations and that they can, right? So similar to calculus. Uh, And so we had a lab here, a seminar class, a short class on the physics of everyday things. And that instructor has a master's degree in physics, like he knows what he's doing. And he is able to teach them a concept of physics, show them how to work out the math and work out the whatever, and then say, now it's your turn. Now you design an experiment where you're going to make a prediction about what's 
physics-wise, what's going to happen when you drop this thing or throw this thing or get this thing, pour this thing and that thing. He, they used toilets flushing. They used ball throwing. They used all kinds of things. And he had them each design a, an experiment based on something they were interested in, sports, skateboarding, whatever. And then he would have them do the predictions, do the experiment, work out the calculations of like what just happened to check whether they were right or wrong about their predictions um, and report back. And he was able to tell based on that project that they were doing and what they showed him, do they understand the concepts of physics? Can they do the calculations? Can they work the formulas? And would they be able to then do it again? Can they transfer that knowledge from this skateboarding thing that they just did to if two people are falling into a pool, who's going to fall faster? Can they transfer that knowledge to this thing? So he was able to do all of that without ever giving them a test or ever giving them a grade. And then, so at Wayfinding, I think students love, hate this, that at the end of every class, whether it's a short class or a long class, and also throughout on every project that they do, Mm -hmm. and each project, each student gets to design it. So rather it being, so most learning at most traditional education is faculty-centered. It's easier for the faculty to give tests, to give lectures, to pick a textbook. This is all student-centered here. So the faculty are facilitators of helping the students get what they need. So every student gets to design their own projects in the class, and they can write things, they can make videos, they can do podcasts, they can create interpretive dance pieces or art pieces or make a presentation, whatever it is that works best for that student based on what they're trying to build, and they customize it for their own areas of interest and passion. So it's all student-focused, and the faculty member has to roll with what the students want instead of the other way around which I think is how it should be. But that's, again, a whole other conversation. So at the end of every project and at the end of every class, these faculty members spend hours and hours and hours writing feedback and writing these narrative evaluations for students. And so at the end of every course, faculty write paragraphs about what what is this student's strengths? What is this this student's area for improvement? What is their overall narrative? You had three to five learning objectives for this course, ranging from everything from like pretty basic standard stuff like critical thinking to big things like what it takes to do something epic. Mm. Right? And you have to evaluate each student on each of the things you said were important in your class, and then you have to write a narrative. Why? Why did you give this student um, a mastery rating on what it takes to do something epic? Or why did you give them a capable rating on that? Like, so the faculty have to do a lot more work on behalf of the student rather than the other way around to really give the student informational feedback that will help them to hone their skills and develop their skills and get better as they go. So, I mean, yeah, we don't have grades, but what we have is way more complicated and way more valuable, I would say. And how were you, what is the difference between mastery and capable? I mean, if, I mean, I know it's hard to quantify really because. That's, and each faculty member gets to define that for their own selves in their class. So in their class, in their roadmap, which is what we call syllabi here is, uh, they say to, to earn a mastery in this class, these are the things I'm looking for, or to earn a mastery on this project, we're looking for the, you know, so each faculty member gets to, based on their own course, define that because some courses are more project-based and some are more discussion-based and some are more where participation is essential and other things are more like participation in the room with their cohort mates is more essential say in a communicating effectively class 
But if what we're asking them to do is something more, much more introspective and reflective and deep thinking, they maybe don't have to be doing that in the room with the people. They could be doing that on their own, and the, only the faculty member sees that and can evaluate them based on that. So it's a little different for every class, but the faculty members are entrusted to, yeah. to decide that. Yeah. And so, the other thing I should yeah. mention curriculum-wise, because yes. um, it's my favorite part and we haven't even mentioned it yet, oh, is gonna... the guides. Oh, yes, uh, we can talk about this. Okay. It's a separate topic. Okay. Altogether. Uh, but I'm going to just call on the, the list of curriculums uh, that they have, and okay. I, I hope it's in the right sequence. So there's Wayfinding 101, Understanding Our World, Understanding Ourselves and Others, Engaging with Information, Futures and Citizenship, Communicating Effectively, Science, Technology, and Society, Making Good Choices, and lastly, is The Good Life. Right. Were there any, let's, maybe let's start with, were there any um, topics that you had to add in um, because of accreditation? Were there any topics that you had to cut out that didn't make the board because you only have two years? Maybe it's a time thing. Um, yeah, let's just start there. Uh, no. Oh, okay. I was, which is one of my huge surprises because I sat down with a bunch of smart people, designed what we think is the ideal wayfinding program, um, submitted all the paperwork to OHEC and kept our fingers crossed because we figured for sure they would say, oh, you really need more of this or you need to add this or you need to... Ch-. Nothing. Okay. So it is as we originally intended it to be. Now, that doesn't mean we've gotten everything exactly right and we've had to like tweak things along the way, right. but we haven't changed any of the core classes. We haven't added anything or subtracted anything. Yeah. Um, and we haven't changed the way it all fits together. Like all the students do two internships, all the students have a guide, mm. all the students do 12 of these labs or seminars. Mm. So that, that has all remained as we designed well, it. T- tell me a little bit about the sequencing a little bit. Okay. Um, like, why, why do you put it in this sequence? Or, you know, like, why can't we put the good life at, at the front? You know, let's right. tackle the biggest questions, right? Right. Um, so... There are some things that are flexible. So our first cohort took things in the order that I had mapped it out originally. And our second cohort is taking it in an ever so slightly different order. Not very, very different, but a little bit different. Um, The only things that I feel that I hold sacred in terms of the sequencing of it is that the first thing is Wayfinding 101. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is The Good Life. Mm. Because the first course is a deep dive in who are you. Why are you here? What are you trying to do? What are we trying to get out of this? And that seems like the place to start. And the good life, is, which is being taught right now for the very first time, so we'll see. <laughs> but it seems, it seems like it's working, yeah. um, is that as they prepare to leave this place, where they're surrounded by people who think about these things more or less the way they think about, or at least are willing to engage in this kind of thinking, and they're about to go out into the world where they don't have that kind of a support system, mm. Um, one last chance to really solidify for their own selves what is their definition of the good life. Um, And actually over here on the wall, you can see a lot of the things that they talk about in that class. Gender expectations, love, money, health, death, happiness, success, community, career. Like they break down what society's norms are about those things and create their own definition for each of those things. So that when they leave here, they've got reminders of who they are and who they want to be in the world, and they can carry that with them. Not that they're not going to have to do that again at some point in their life. We all do. Mm -hmm. But 
they're at least leaving here with that solid foundation. The other thing I hold sacred is that anytime, so students are usually, usually in two core classes at once. Sometimes they're only in one. For example, right now they're only in the good life because that is like break. Yeah, right. So, um, and we need them to also have space in their schedule to do internships and other things. So by the end, we've got them in like just one class. They're doing one class and an internship or one class and preparing to graduate and leave, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But whenever they're in two classes at a time, I want to make sure that one class is self-focused and the other class is society-focused. So of those nine courses, about half of them are self and half of them are society. So that's why at the beginning, they're concurrently in uh, Wayfinding 101 and Understanding Our World. So that they're having to grapple with both of those things simultaneously because that's how the whole program is designed. I think a lot of the stuff in the middle is kind of flexible. So for example... The first cohort, in their second term, they took understanding ourselves and others. Because I thought, well, that makes sense. At the beginning, you've now done Wayfinding 101. You've got some foundation of who you are. Let's build on that. And now let's add in other people. Now we're trying to figure out what, how teams work and how do you collaborate with others effectively and how do you... And it was fine. But cohort two is taking that at the beginning of their second year. And I think that might actually, we're going to find out, but med actually be even better because they've now know themselves really well. They're in a cohort model, so they know each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. And now what we're trying to do is help them refine that. Help them refine, here are my peers. We now need to get together and do something. How do we best make that work? And now we trust each other and we understand each other's strengths and weaknesses. We can put together a more effective team with more knowledge and intention. I think it might work better. We're about to find out. Right. So I think some of those middle courses can shift around and it might turn out to be that it depends on the cohort. I can tell you our second cohort was not willing to work in teams with each other their second term. Now they are and they will and they'll be great. But if I tried to make them do that back at the beginning, we would have had disaster. Ah. But I think that's fine. What do you think so? They're just a very, they're a different cohort. They're, they're really different. They're much, and I think this is positive. This is what we want. This is where we're going. This is intentional. They're more diverse. Mm-hmm. Our first cohort um, has a lot of diversity of age, um, lived experience, socioeconomic background, but they're all white. Mm-hmm. And they all come from a somewhat same like worldview, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Our second cohort is not that way. We have a lot more uh, gender non-binary folks in that cohort, students of color. We still have the same age range, and um, they came from all over the country yeah. kind of range. Um, but they're much more diverse in their lived experience, in their worldview, in their background, in their perspectives. Yeah. And that takes a longer time for them to build up the trust and the willingness to be vulnerable and the willingness to understand each other and find their common ground. So I think you can put... I mean, if you've got a somewhat homogenous group and you put them together and ask them to do something together, they're going to be able to do that quicker, easier, easier than when you've got a more heterogeneous group. And that's, we want, the more diversity we have, the better, like no question. And it means that we have to be willing to make some of these adjustments when we bring in a cohort and we learn who they are and we realize this is where they are right now and this is what they need next. And because we're small enough, we can do that. Mm. And, and, and would I, would you want to touch on the, the numbers really quick? Because we have sure. two special numbers here. We have okay. the number 24. Okay. And we have the number 150. Yeah. 
I hold the number 150 sacred. I don't hold the number 24 sacred, oh, okay. and I'll tell you why. The 150 is, there's a lot of research by a uh, sociologist, na- sociologist anthropologist named Dunbar. Yeah. So it's like Dunbar's number. Yeah. Um, it's often also called the law of 150. And it says that any community where everybody needs to know each other, like genuinely actually know each other, know something about each other, uh, 150 is the maximum size you can have before that starts to deteriorate. Yeah. And, and 150 is pushing it. Like that's a lot of people. So I've decided that I don't want wayfinding to ever get any one location of wayfinding to ever get larger than 150 people. Um, In our case, in our model, that probably looks like something around 100 students and then the staff and faculty to support those students. The building that we got, um, when we we had very few criteria when we were looking for buildings, but one of the criteria was that it had one large space that fit 150 people, that we could grow to that size in that building without having to move to another location, and that once we, like, we could use that building forever, right? So we have one large space in this building that will fit that people, and then once we get to that size, which is probably three years from now, Mm -hmm. we would open a second location. The way we get to that size is by bringing in cohorts of students, Originally, we thought the ideal cohort size was 24. Oh, originally, you thought. We had to pick a number to build all of the modeling off after and all of the budgets after. Um, one of our board members suggested the number 24. This is why I don't hold it sacred. Because uh, 24 is divisible by a lot of things. You can divide it by 12 or 6 or 4 or 3 or 2 or... Yeah. So sure, but the odds of getting exactly 24 people at any given time is real low. So our first cohort was 15, um, which gave us a good starting point to see how does that feel. And it felt like, actually, that's pretty good. We could be a little bit bigger than that. Everything is discussion-based. Everything is cohort-based. So we need it to be a manageable number of people. If you put 24 students in a college classroom and expect them to have a conversation, that 24 is too many people. You can't hear all the voices and respect and see every student if you've got 24 of them. You can if you have 15. Apparently you can if you have 18, because our second cohort came in with that many, and we were able to do it there. Um, We think the sweet spot for an ideal cohort size is probably in that ballpark of 18, maybe 20, because not all of the students are going to finish the entire program. Uh, So you need to account for that a little bit. Um, but if you really want to see and hear and be true to every student individually and see them all as human beings, whole human beings who you really get to know, I think 24 is probably too many. But there's an easy way to solve that. Right now, we're only starting one cohort per year. Uh, so the model assumes that in the next year or two, depending, we would start two cohorts per year. So we'd start one in August, and maybe that one in August is 15 or 18 or whatever it is. And we start one in January, and maybe the one in January is six or eight or ten. And then you still have the same number of students and the same growth, but you are still able to maintain that cohort model where everybody can have a genuine, solid community. So I don't hold 24 as sacred as I hold 150, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Ethan, uh, so 15 and Ethan, or 15, 20 might be a good number over there. Yeah. Wow. So I want to uh, dive, do a deep dive on one of the um, um, 
uh, classes that they, the curriculum or the core curriculum they have and then we're going to jump into guides because uh, yeah. that's really cool I, I i think it's really cool it's like my favorite part i think yeah <laughs> and it's the most unique yeah so one of the 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 core pieces of things that i'm trying personally trying to explore is this idea of like the separation between crafting yourself and and you know nature versus nurture idea and like what are what are those traits that we pick up as identities to help us get what we want in the society and it's all well and natural we are all survival and replication machines um, versus what might be the real answer of like what are some of the categories of sorting of who we are like our height or our hair color or whatnot um where how deep or you know is does that course cover in, in that sense I feel like that's always a conversation we're having. <laughs> I, think, I think the wayfinding students are always having that conversation for themselves and always trying to unpack and redefine and really think about... Because they're, they're almost... Like, when they're here, they're almost, like, pausing their life in a moment. Mm-hmm. And they're doing a whole heck of a lot during this pause. Yeah. Like, what they have done in their two years is more than I have done, with the exception of the last two years, in any two-year period of my entire life. Yeah. What these students have done is unbelievable. Mm. Um, the quantity of it, the quality of it, the depth of it, no matter how you look at it. So I say pause, but it's a, there's a lot of activity in that pause. Yeah. So I think one of their ongoing conversations through that entire two years is this very question mm. of how did they get here? How much of who they are right now is fixed and how much of it is changeable? And how much of it do they want to change? How much of it do they not want to change? Where did it come from? Understanding where it came from, understanding where it's going, understanding how their agency in the direction of that. Um, So I kind of think it's an implicit thing that's happening throughout the curriculum through the entire two years that they're here. And I think it starts in that first course. um, And it continues in the understanding ourselves in others course and then throughout the guide program in some other ways. where So we, we do give them things like the inventories, the ones you hear about all the time, the Myers-Briggs type indicator and the strengths finder and the, yeah. So they take those things, um, but they often push back really hard on that stuff because, <coughs> for example, they get their Myers-Briggs results and we go through some activities on what does it mean. And they, they immediately, their immediate reaction is, no, I'm not that. Like, yeah, yeah, the description might fit me, but I can't be put in one of 16 boxes. Like, I'm not an ISTJ. Like, that's not a thing. That's, like, too simplified. I'm way more complicated than that. And they rightfully so push back against any label and any category and any attempt to put them in a box of some sort and have some external thing define them. And once they get over that, they then start thinking about it in, what can I take from this? Mm -hmm. How does this help me understand myself a little bit? more but more importantly how does it help me understand others so the very the one that easily is talk aboutable is the introversion extroversion like they understand who they are in that in that framework but more importantly they say it helps them understand how to interact with other people more effectively and genuinely so because a lot of them arrive here having done a lot of what you described where they've adopted these characteristics to help them manipulate the world and navigate the world that are not genuinely who they are. So they spend their first period of time here, and for some of them it's a longer time, some it's a shorter, breaking that down and getting to the core of who they are and then learning how to show up as those people. 
and not the people that their parents or society or whoever told them to be. We've got a couple examples right now of folks who, um, one guy, his whole family went to business school. His entire family went to business school. He grew up on the East Coast. Going to a fancy, expensive business school is the thing you do. It is, it, that's just how it is. And he was an athlete all through high school and got a scholarship to play baseball at a fancy business school on the East Coast. And that was exactly what everybody expected him to do. And he went and he did it and he was miserable. And when he arrived here, he was just at the beginning of this process of breaking down all of those narratives and figuring out what things he had adopted to make the external world give him accolades and praise and keep, I mean, he made, he was like, a straight-A student, right, for all of his life. Mm. And he realized that doesn't define me at all, and baseball doesn't define me, and going to a fancy business school doesn't define me, and all of these things. And so I think one of the accidental things, but it's not, nothing's accidental here, mm-hmm. but it's an implicit part of the curriculum is navigating all of that. Because to some extent, if we're going to thrive through the rest of our lives, we can't keep putting on the masks and the facades that everybody else says we need to have. Well, also, also knowing that those are labels and maybe even use them as tools to get what you want. Right, right. Um, yeah, because there's, there's a big question there to unpack. Yeah, and we could probably talk about that for like yeah, days, and it's like days. Philosophical way to right. get it. And, right. and yeah, I read a bunch of Eastern philosophy and that's not a whole thing altogether. Uh, but let's talk about guys, you know, our favorite thing. So yeah. let me give you what my understanding of a guy is. Okay. You fill in the gaps. Um, so I talked to Mac earlier today. Okay. And um, so one of the core pieces of um, Wayfinding Academy is that you, every week you, you spend 45 minutes um, with this person uh, that they try to try their best to put you with that might be a good fit. They ask you a couple of questions. Uh, and then you spend 45 minutes talking to them. Uh, and one of the things that Mac told me that stood out was that she learned about something called um, pressure, sh- uh, pressure scheduling or like worry scheduling, where like, oh, I, maybe this question of who you are is a bit too big, but I would like to schedule it in term four. And oh, really? that put that put that in there. Yeah. Or oh, this internship thing, man, like, because well, she, she's a, quite anxious. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, okay, well, let's put it here. Like, like that, yeah. that's when I will start worrying about it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so maybe you want to start me off on like, how does one, how do you look for, uh, what do you look for when you, when you hire or you, when you get a person as a guy and, you know, mistakes you made along the ways uh, and the guys that stood out, they're like amazing and like what kind of traits and characteristics that they have, any common traits that they have over there and uh, all that good stuff. Take it away. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, if um, I believe that the guides at Wayfinding are my version of the magicians here. What the, what the guides do with their students is f- certainly magic. Um, and I, I'm sure you got that when talking to Meg. I'm sure that came out. I'm sure that came out in that conversation. Um, the, because what the guides do is f- get to know every student. So each guide has somewhere between four and seven students. And the guides get to know those students extraordinarily well and serve in a lot of roles for them. They're like their, um, they're like their academic advisors in that they help them navigate the wayfinding program and get the most out of it. If they're struggling in a class or they have a project assigned to them and they're not sure how to approach it, the, their guide helps them talk that through based on what 
lots of knowledge of what they have about that student and their strengths and weaknesses and struggles and passions and interests. But they're also kind of like a life coach, sort of, because they're helping them find their next step all the time, like helping Meg find an internship that's going to be a good match for her. Or she wants to leave her part-time food service industry job so that she can get a part-time job that makes her come alive, that also provides some income. And her guide helps her with that. But they're also their accountability buddies because they're also the person that says, well, you told me three weeks ago that you were going to do this next. How is that going? And so they check in with them all of the time. And they also have to help students navigate all kinds of things that come up in life in any two-year period of your life. Just think of what you go through, right? Um, And especially with the world being in as much turmoil as it's being, and especially with them being in as much of a stage of transition in their life as they're being. So these guides field everything from relationship questions to um, gender identity questions to housing and roommate questions. And the guides are not therapists. So they have to also be really good at setting boundaries of saying, I can help with these things. And that thing is out of my scope of expertise. And I'm going to refer you to these people because they can help with that thing. So the guy and the guide also can't be the student's best friend because they've got to be the one to call them on their crap when they need calling on their crap, right? Mm-hmm. Like so it's this really complicated role. Hard. Very hard. I think it's the hardest role we've got. And the people who do it are the ones who are willing to let the students be first always. Because sometimes they have to set aside their own personal thoughts of how something should be done or how they would do a thing to meet the students where they're at and really understand the students. They also have to be really, really, really good listeners and really good question askers. So um, they also have to, and this is a weird one, and I'm almost hesitant to say it because not all of our guides are this, um, but they have to be organized. The things that they're asking students to do, they also have to be able to model themselves. So if they say they're going to do something, they have to do it, the guide. Because they're holding that student accountable to that same standard of conscientiousness and follow through with your word. And if the guide can't do it, they certainly can't ask their students to be doing it. So I guess to your question of where I've gone wrong is that there's, and it's only happened once uh, so far, I'm open to, I may screw it up again, but um, I hired someone at the very beginning who's a fantastic human being, is one of the most gifted teachers I'd ever met in my entire teaching career. So for my first set of faculty, I just hired the best teachers I knew from all of my previous life who wanted out of the traditional system and wanted into something more meaningful for them. And I pulled them away from that and I said, here you go, here's your place. And they were like, thank goodness this exists. And I hired somebody who is tremendous. He, he's an incredible soul. He's so dedicated. He's so passionate. He's so social justice minded. He's a really good listener. Um, and he's a really good teacher. And he helps students find these things inside themselves that they didn't know were there. He turned out to be a bad guide because he had a lot of stuff going on in his life, right? And he he wasn't able to follow through on every single thing he said he was going to do the way we need to model for students. He just had too much turmoil. And our guides, our crew in general, but especially our guides, have to be solid and foundational because our students are not going to be. They're going to be doing all of this change for two years. And we have to provide this steady foundation and 
ability to check in and ability to, they have to know we are always 100% steady and there for them and whatever they need, we've got their back. So if we have turmoil, not that we don't share that with them because we're all humans too, they know that, but they also have to know they can count on us all the time. And he had too much going on. He still, he still teaches classes. He still has really good relationships with students. He's still all these great things. And the guide role was just not the right role for him. So um, that's one of the ones that I've learned. Uh, because that... I, the new criteria that you add on to the list. Right? I guess so, yeah. That I didn't know until I encountered it. And then I realized, oh, right. We need guides to also be like this. Um, and like I said, it's magic. I don't know how they do what they do. Uh, it's a really hard job. So what kind of questions do you ask students uh, to match them with the right guides? And we, I actually ask the guides and the students the same questions, um, slightly rephrased. But basically what I'm looking for is um, some kind of commonality of lived experience. So I, by the time a student gets here, I have their whole application and lots and lots and lots of information. And we've probably talked multiple times. So I know a bit about their lived experience. I ask them if there's any elements of their lived experience that they, if I can, that they would like me to try to find in their guide. So um, if their gender identity, for example, is really important and I can match them on that, if they really want me to try, I'll try, right? Um, I also ask them, like, what type of, they're going to have this person with them for two years. What type of support do they generally want? Do they want somebody who's a little bit more like rigid and hold them accountable and like set deadlines and keep them organized? Or do they want somebody who's going to be more soft with them and more like um, cuddly for a while and a cheerleader and cheer them, right? Um, And then I ask guides the same thing. Are you more like the good accountability buddy who holds people, you know, and is really organized? Or are you better at cheerleading? Are you better at... And do you have any guides that you think you really couldn't work well with? Like your lived experience. Is there anything that you think, I just wouldn't be able to help somebody who is, comes from this type of background or this type of lived experience because I have no knowledge of that or I have no expertise in that. Mm-hmm. And then I try to make the best matches I can. But, you know, I have a team of what, like three guides or four yeah. guides for every cohort and we do our best. And we have a mechanism for students to switch if they need to switch, if something comes up, What's if there's the a serious conflict. What, what, how does it look like, the mechanism? Um, it's, basically, they go to the guide program coordinator and they talk about, they usually talk with their guide first and they talk about why it's not working. And sometimes the guide adjusts and the guide says, oh, okay, I realize that for you, like for my other students, I do this thing, but this isn't working for you. How do we adjust so that it works for you? And sometimes the guide and the student just figure it out and they adjust and it works. And other times there's like the student realize, maybe the student at first thought what they really want is somebody to hold them accountable and set deadlines and whatever. But then they get here and they realize, no, I really just want a cheerleader. And I've partnered them with the first type and they're like, I really want the other type. So then we're like, okay, well, how do we make that? Sometimes the guide can switch, but we're humans and we have personalities and sometimes we can't make that dramatic of a switch. So we end up switching the student to another guide. Um, But we try to do it all open, transparent, open conversation as much as we can and so far we've been able to do that does the student find it hard to sort of like bring out those conversations because those are crucial and difficult conversations yes they're crucial and difficult and in the first few months it's very hard for students to do that and we find that they usually go to somebody else first Mm -hmm. and we send them back to their guide and say can you attempt to have this very crucial hard conversation knowing this is hard what we're asking you to do is a big stretch we ask students to stretch all the time. Stretching is a big deal at wayfinding. We all have to stretch, including the crew and the guides. 
Um, and they usually are willing to attempt that stretch. And then after that, if they come back to us again, we say, thank you for trying that. Thank you for having that conversation. What did you learn from it? And now, yes, we'll help make that change for you. Because, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, but we've found that as it's gone on, like in the first couple terms, um, the students would go to their guide first if they're like, something's not working in a core class, right? They're like, oh, this teacher's style doesn't work for me, or I don't think they're giving us enough what they tell us is they don't think the teachers are giving them enough to do. Oh. They're not giving them enough reading. They're not giving them enough projects. That's usually the complaint we get. And they come to their guides. That, that never happens at a traditional college, by the way. Like, never. So they'd go to their guides first. And then what we've been seeing in this, this current term yeah. is they don't go to the guides don't get that anymore. They go straight to the faculty now and say, I'd like you to make this harder for me. And then the faculty adjust. So students have learned how to advocate for themselves um, and have those difficult conversations. What I like about it, uh, just to put a footnote there, is that you go to the right person and get, get the person to do it. I mean, like, so if your problem is this and this person has the responsibility or ability to, to change the thing and make, you, make a problem go away, then you go to that person and finding the right source right. to right. solve your problem. Right. Yes, the guides help with that a lot, for sure. Yeah. So I feel like the guide is the most unique thing we do and the most magic thing we do and the hardest to explain. So thank you for asking about it because it's complicated. <laughs> no, I, and, I, and, I, and I betcha because um, it, I almost have no idea. How do you hire for one? Um, do you just like, oh, put it, hope for magic again? Yes. <laughs> yes. Can I expand that question a little bit? Because sure. this is not just guides, but that's how I hire in general. Matchmaker? I generally hire... Um, I first always try to hire from the people I know. So my founding team were, was me reaching out to my network and saying, I'm starting my own college, who wants to help? And then seeing who showed up again and again and again and again. And then when I started to have like actual paid employees, it was those people, right? Um, we kind of hire that way for other stuff too, right? So um, some of the people on the team now were hired because I got to know them over a period of time and they showed up consistently and they said, I really wanted to help with this or I have skills in this. And then they'd volunteer their time or they'd keep doing things. And then an opening came up and I said, you know, you seem like a great fit for this and you've been following along with us for a while. What do you think of this? And then I hire that way. If I can hire that way, I do. Right. Um, I can't always. So more longitudinal tests of like their character and instead of what they say, you can see that. Yes, exactly. And they know the culture. We're a pretty unique culture. Um, we're really flexible. So we don't, we don't track hours. We don't track vacation time. Everybody is empowered to like, if, as long as they get their job done, they can do it however they want from wherever they want, whenever they want. We, if you're student facing, you need to be here more. If you're not, you can be here less. Um, we have a weekly crew meeting that everybody has to be at. But other than that, so that takes a certain type of person. And so the people who have been around a lot, we know that they get that and they can work that way. Um, some positions are harder. For example, um, just this morning, I hired a new, and this is also very sad, a new chief business officer. Because my founding chief business officer, uh, who's Danish, uh, moved back to Denmark six months ago. Uh, he and his wife had been planning on doing that for a while. And when Wayfinding came along, I'd known him before. Uh, he said, I really want to help with this. And I think I've got some special skills and talents that you need to get this thing started. 
Um, and I'd like to dedicate myself to helping that happen. And then we're going to proceed with our life plan already in progress and move to Denmark. So you've got this much time with me and then I'm going to. Right. And he moved to, De- he gave me like an extra, I think, eight months beyond oh, what wow. he had originally thought. And then he moved to Denmark and um, finally got another job over there. And I needed to hire his replacement. And I can't, I didn't know anybody, it turned out, in my network who could do what he did. Um, and I, it's a linchpin. It's, it's, it's Im- nearly impossible to replace him. And so I ended up having to do what most organizations do. And I posted the job on all these online job search sites and took applications. And we did interviews and we did all this stuff. And we found this wonderful woman who um, Biaga interviewed remotely and made him, her show him all of her spreadsheets and prove that she could do all of the things he can do. And then she, uh, another team member and I here, interviewed her for culture and fit with the organization. And she seemed fantastic on both levels. And so I offered her the job yesterday and this morning she accepted. So sometimes I hire using like more traditional yeah, models of yeah. hiring. Um, and I don't think we always get it right, but uh, we try to do a lot of intention and a lot of purposefulness with that process so that the odds of it sticking are really, really good. And so far we've only had two that didn't. On the note on on guys, I mean, like if you wouldn't need to hire another one. Right, which I do every year. Every right. year I have to hire new guides for the new coming in students. Do you have a do you have a process to sort of like a little uh, test, uh, mini test or whatever to know? Yeah, because talking about it is very different than, right. than I mean, I think it's almost impossible to test for integrity and conscientiousness. I mean, we can look at their calendar. I don't know. That's where, that's where a lot of this, like if they've been around for, so one great example is the guy that I just hired to be a guide for cohort three, um, taught a lab with us first. So he'd been following wayfinding from the very beginning and reached out to us and said, Hey, I've got these skill sets. I could teach labs on these topics. Are you interested? Um, and he had a really fascinating background. That's pretty diverse. And he taught a lab on sustainability, right? So like environmentalism and sustainable living, which was great. Students loved it. But what I learned through that process was students loved him, right? He was a really good teacher. He was really good at making connections with them. They all felt seen and heard by him. He also, kind of magic, got this whole group. His lab was full. He had like, I don't know, 15 people in it. And he got them to do all the things he asked them to do when he asked them to do it, which you know, like with that many people with that much going on. Um, and he gave them feedback, really in-depth, really thoughtful feedback on everything they did. And they loved him. And so when I had a job opening for guides and I publicized that and he applied for it, I thought, hmm, interesting, right? Like he's been around, he gets wayfinding, he knows wayfinding. I was able to ask the crew who'd worked with him, how, how did that go? They were like, oh, he's great great email communication, does everything he says he's going to do, meets every deadline we set for him. Students said fantastic things about him. And then I met with him and then students met with him and then other guides met with him. And then we kind of pool our knowledge and it's like, is this person going to be a good fit? Do we have any red flags? Do we have anything we need to know? So we kind of use this like take as, as long as we can to get to know somebody kind of a method, which I guess is a test. We don't have a very specific, because they all come to us different ways. So my other guide for the third cohort is also my director of student services. And so I see her work in a lot of different capacities, and she will pick up the guide role when the next cohort starts. And so by watching her work with students, I know she's got this. So it's, it's different for every one of them. Understandable. 
Uh, well, let's, I mean, time is short. Yeah. We're going to move on to um, uh, funding real quick. Okay. Um, so 200,000, um, you got it. We talked a little bit about how we got there just now. Um, how do we manage to sort of like use the fund? And you're also going to be starting another, it started already, it started right? It started already. It's counting down. It is. I hope oh, I can get it. It is counting yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, how do you use the $200,000 uh, that you, you, achieve, you got from 2015? And why do we need another one now? The first $200,000 we used for our entire first year of starting up. So that paid our first few employees. That got us into a building. Uh, and there was a lot getting into the building. You have to like change city coding, zoning for the building and like do all of that sort of paperwork. It got us through that. We have to pay fees to the Oregon Higher Education Coordinating Commission. Uh, it got us all the basic things you need, you know, like websites and paying a developer to build our application process. So it basically just set up all the foundational stuff. So most of that first $200,000 went to all that, um, to getting everything ready, everything in place, everything set for the first students to arrive. Uh, so it was kind of our like runway before anybody, students paid tuition. Uh, so it did. It got us through our entire first year. We even had a little tiny bit left over to get us started with our first year with students, right? Um, so the reason we're doing another one now, and I, I, I think, and don't hold me to this, but I'm pretty sure this will be the last time we do a crowdfunding campaign. Um, it makes sense to do it now. So we have a current one. We've switched from Indiegogo to GoFundMe because Indiegogo changed its platform and it no longer does crowdfunding campaigns for nonprofits. Uh, so we switched to GoFundMe, and we have a current GoFundMe campaign. The goal is much lower. It's $60,000 this time um, because we already, back then we didn't, but now we already have a steady stream of ongoing support from our community. We have luminaries who donate on a monthly basis who provide approximately 21 22% of our annual revenue just by continuing to be involved. So we don't need to raise a huge, large chunk quite like the way we did before, because we have their continued ongoing support for which we're extremely grateful. Um, the current thought was, we have a moment here, one moment where we are celebrating for the first time ever having our first ever graduation of our first students. So we want to celebrate that. Crowdfunding campaigns are a good way to like spread word far and wide about something that's happening. So the video that it accompanies our campaign is about the first two years of our first cohort of students and what that looked like. Um, we also, our, our board chair, Charlie, says that we are leaving the starting up stage and entering the growing up stage, which feels about right. And so we're, grow we're entering this growth phase. We've been growing. Um, the numbers say we've been growing about 20% year over year. And we're about to take a little bit of a leap. Um, in the next couple of years, we'll double the size of our student body by taking in larger cohorts and more than one cohort per year. And we're about to launch our second program, which is called the, it's, we're calling it the Lifelong Wayfinding Program. And it's for older folks. It's for folks who are in their later stages of career or maybe approaching retirement or maybe already retired. And they want a wayfinding-like experience. Similar to what you said earlier, people tell us often, hey, if this was around when I went to college, I would have done this. Mm -hmm. And 
so we got to thinking, well, why can't we create this for people who are at later stages of their life where we do the same sorts of things? They get a guide, they do Wayfinding 101, they get the good life. It's shorter. It's like a six to eight week program. We're going to offer it for the first time next year. So if people are interested, if anybody who is watching this or hearing this is interested, they can reach out now and say, I want to be in that first cohort of your lifelong Wayfinding program. I think we're offering it for the first time in um, early 2019, and we're going to sign people up in the fall, so in the next, over the next few months. Uh, and we're going to do construction on this building because we've made it work, but we have all these weird storage spaces that, because the building used to be a YWCA, so we have shower rooms and steam rooms that we use for storage that could probably be better used as classrooms. Yeah. So as we grow, we're going to need more classrooms. So right now we have this moment in time to celebrate our first ever graduation and to launch our growth into the next stage of what Wayfinding is going to be. And so for us, it seemed appropriate to go back to our community and say, you helped us get the thing going. Let's help it grow and get them involved in this. So just like we have this founder's wall up above here, we're going to create a brand new supporter's wall. We have a couple of design ideas, but nothing confirmed yet. So that everybody who donates to this one also becomes a supporter, a growth founder, right? Um, so we're doing it now. I don't think we'll ever do it. I don't think we'll ever do it again. Um, so it's kind of a unique opportunity to say, yeah, I think this thing should exist. Yeah. I want to be part of it. I, and it doesn't like our lowest donation level is $10 and our highest is $10,000. And in our original campaign, we had people who gave $10 and we had people who gave $10,000 and everything in between. Um, and of course they always get the tax deduction, but this, when we do a crowdfunding campaign, they also get some sort of reward right? You can also get like to go with us on a learn and explore trip, or you get to go get a tech, ticket to a TEDx event, or you get coach individualized coaching on how to travel hack more effectively. So you also get something yeah. in addition to the, you know, so um, that's why we're doing it now. I'm intrigued on the lifelong wayfinding um, yeah. um, classes, six to eight weeks. Uh, what's the commitment? What is the um, intensity? Uh, what's the cadence and how is it a reduction from the core curriculum? Right. What's there and what's not going to be there? Um, some of this will, the cadence I'd say and the rhythm, we don't know until we do it. Um, but we have an idea of what we think it would be like. It would all be on site, in person, here in the building. Um, which also offers an intergenerational um, learning community opportunity. Because we'd have our students who are here in the traditional two-year program who are on average younger. And then we'd have the older generation of students um, and they would be interacting on a variety of ways informally, not often in classes, but sometimes in classes. Right. Um, but the six to eight week program is going to take the first course and the last course. So it's going to be mostly self-focused, less society focused, although we're never going to get away entirely from the society thing. Uh, so it'll be basically a blend of Wayfinding 101 and The Good Life. And they'll have a guide. So they'll, have, they'll meet probably three or four days a week in class, in person, with a faculty member in the building. And they'll have a guide who they would meet with for 45 minutes a week. So sort of that accountability check-in partner um, every week for that time. And then they'll also get to do all the other things that are happening at that time. They can take labs that are going on in that time, go on learn and explore trips. Uh, they could do an internship if they want. So any other resources that we always yeah. are always offering, they can opt into any of that that they want. Um, so it might mean some people are moving here for six to eight weeks to do the program with us and then returning to their life back wherever. Or it might mean that they already live in Portland and they're going to do this with us and then go 
you know, stay in the community. Great. Um, how's your how's your brain working on over here? Because we are like so stretched. And I, I mean, I know. Well, the the rounds of the quick questions. I want to run yeah. run it by you. I can do the quick questions. Okay. I'm surprised when I look at the clock. I'm like, wow, I can't believe we've been talking. <laughs> I know, me too. Um, it's good conversation. Um, so, quick round of question. Dan's, Dan's questions are short, but your answers don't need to be. Yeah. Um, I'll try. <laughs> what is the books or books you have given most as a gift? Um, the book that I give the most as a gift is The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Have you read that one? Yeah. So I've, I reread it about once a year, and I find that I get something new out of it every time, depending on what I'm doing in life. And I, so I always give it as a gift, and I never try to tell people what to get out of it, because it's, it's different for every person. All right. What have you purchased recently under $100 that has most impacted your life in the last six months or a year? Uh, I don't buy much, tiny house and all. But every year... I buy a new pair of running shoes and I usually buy it in the spring. So it was just a few months ago because for five years I've walked the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage in Spain. Uh, and it's now a learn and explore trip. We take students every year now, students and community and crew and faculty go. Um, and we spend 15 days walking on average 15 miles a day across Spain. So I always make sure I get a new fresh pair of shoes before going, and I usually buy last season's styles so that I can get them for under $100. There we go. What is the exact, do you know? They are Brooks Cascadias. Okay. And so I recommend literally to everybody who's going on the trip, I say buy Brooks Cascadias or something very much like it. In fact, we're, we are tr- working on getting a sponsorship from Brooks to see if they would be willing to give us a certain number of free pairs of shoes every year to sponsor our Camino trip each year. Uh, and I, a friend of mine just started working there. there go. I now have an in. <laughs> um, what are some of the worst advice or that you see or hear being dispensed in your world? In my world, I often hear people saying or just making the assumption, embedded assumption, even if they don't say it outright, that um, putting things online is the answer to everything. And I think that that's wrong. I actually think that in higher education, the trend to put more and more things online, online learning, online classrooms, online, all of this, is, part of the, is a significant part of the problem. And I actually think what we don't have enough of is in-person, face-to-face, genuine human connection in community. Um, so every once in a while, I have somebody say, somebody either make the automatic assumption that, oh, you're a brand new college, everything must be online. Nothing is, I mean, yeah, we have a website and we do all that stuff, but everything is in person, face-to-face. And then I have other people telling me, oh, you know what you should do to expand is you just put everything online and then you grow. And that that is bad advice. (laughs) When you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? The... And maybe it's just because we're approaching graduation and I think about them just about all day, every day. But our students, the ones graduating, but also the ones not graduating. Um, for me, this, like they're successful because they've, they've taken on something with intention and purpose. And they've done really, really hard work. With, like what they do every day to show up and get, continue to engage and dig deep and find their purpose and come out the other side with confidence and intention. Um, 
it's really hard work. And so that to me is what success is. Uh, and it's the ones graduating is the, are the most obvious example, but even the ones who are like just starting the program with us in August or the ones who are halfway through, um, they've also got it. Like they're also doing that work and are being successful. Are there any routines or habits that you find important morning or evening? Um, peop- I think this is a thing that surprises people to learn about me because I do so many things that are, that seem to be innovative and unique and creative and whatever. I am the most routinized person you might ever meet because I live in a tiny house. If I can create a system and a routine, that means I don't have to spend any brain power on, I eat, I literally, I eat the same thing for breakfast every single day, right? What we chew the first hour. That's right. The first, like my, I wake up, I do the same thing. I take a shower. I do the same things in the same order in the shower every day. I get out of the shower. I start the tea. I, while the tea is where I make the, you know, I literally, everything is routinized. But what is the, what's the breakfast? Oh, it's two fried eggs and on toast. <laughs> okay. And tea. And tea. Every day. Okay. Like no variation. It's very weird. Even on weekends, even when I don't have to do that, I still do that. And any evening stuff? The evening thing that I do now, this is kind of a new routine for me because I've, um, starting this is very hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's also the most rewarding and most most joyful thing. Um, But I have very bad self-care habits and I will work and work and work and work and work from the moment I wake up till the moment I sleep. So one thing I've started doing recently is spending the last, I don't know, half hour to an hour before I go to sleep each night doing something to shut my mind down. Usually that's taking surveys online to get airline miles so that I'm still doing something sort of productive, sort of productive. Sometimes I multitask where I like watch Netflix while taking surveys, um, but so that I can sort of turn my mind off slowly. Otherwise, I find that it keeps going while I'm sleeping. Um, any most common misconception about you or your work? Um, yeah, not about me, but about the work, I think. Um, one of the most frustrating misconceptions for me is the assumption that accreditation is the answer to things. Um, and I don't, I, we don't have time for me to get into the process of accreditation and how it all works and the nerdy nitty-gritty of all of it but I we are often asked the question are you accredited Um, and often the people asking the question don't know they just know they're supposed to ask that they don't know why they're asking that or what that really means Um, and so I have to ask a few follow-up questions to get at what the answer what the question is that they're really asking me Um, whether it's about do we grant a degree or are the credits transferable or has some outside agency looked at us and said, oh yeah, you're actually legitimate. Like, I'm not sure what they're getting at until I start asking some follow-up questions. Um, What I can, it's frustrating to me because um, the way that higher educational regional accreditation works in this country is really discombobulated at this point and has strayed away from its original purpose and is trying to get back and it is running into all of these barriers. A lot of them are political. A lot of them are financial and budgetary. A lot of them are a result of the way that the U.S. Department of Education runs. And it's really complicated. And having accreditation doesn't actually mean what people who are often asking think it means and does not guarantee that like Unfortunately, and I think this is a huge loss for our community, there was a university in Portland that's been around for 125 years and has 
all of the accreditations, and it just shut down two months ago. Because of? Because of, depends on who you ask, financial difficulties, low enrollment numbers over a long period of time, maybe leadership challenges, maybe changing times and not being able to keep up with changing times and demands of what our society needs in terms of higher education, um, depends on who you ask. But they had all of the accreditations. And they abruptly and suddenly shut down without people being... So just because you have some stamp of accreditation doesn't actually mean what you think it might mean. And using it as a shortcut to try to answer a question is lazy and really doing the real research. So that's one of my frustrating points is people ask me that. And if I say we don't have regional accreditation yet, and it's partly because we haven't been eligible to apply for it until really recently and partly because of our regional accrediting agency needing to get a new president in place and thus putting everything on hold for a year which says nothing about us and our quality and our legitimacy so it's a really complicated question and scenario and people assume that that's the only question they need to know is is this accredited and if the answer is yes we're good and if the answer is no we're bad and that is not accurate So it's a huge misconception. Also put in a quote that I really love over here by Maria Popova, who writes on brain pickings. Uh, A culture of news is a culture without nuance. And that's something I'm trying to explore in this long-form podcast because there's so much to talk about. So much nuance, yeah. Um, Are there any uh, requests for the audience? Last parting words, thoughts to take away, to consider, to try, or otherwise? Okay, sure, yeah. I guess at this very moment, at the present moment, the most helpful thing, and depending, I mean, it sounds like this is going to go live relatively soon. So um, at the present moment, the most helpful thing somebody could do is if they're inspired by this and they think this should be an option, that this should exist and that they believe in the same things that Wayfinding believes in, is probably to contribute to that crowdfunding campaign, which is the easiest, quickest way to join our community right now. And that doesn't mean it has to be lots of money. It can be $10. It can be $50. It can be $10,000. If we can get one of those, holy moly, that would make a big difference. So um, immediately, that's probably the thing. But in the longer term, the thing that people could do to help is to refer students to us. Because most of the students that we have, we get through word of mouth. They hear about us from somebody in the WDS community or in the TEDx community or a high school counselor or a high school teacher tells them about us, or a friend or a friend of a friend tells them about us. So usually um, we're pretty unique, we're pretty nuanced. So they usually, it's because somebody says, hey, I know you, I see you, I understand who you are, and I learned about this thing, and I think this is a thing that's a good match for you, you should check it out. So I think that's the long-term thing that anybody can always be helping us with, is Help us find the people out there for whom wayfinding will make a huge difference in their life. And they just don't happen to know about us yet. I'm going to sneak in a little bit like at one tough question over here before I ask my, my final last question. Brian, my... Okay, no, go ahead. People find you on the internet. Yeah. Um, uh, because so this is something that everybody sort of defined differently, but how do you define purpose? Um, that is a hard question. Yeah. I guess... Or we can, we can come, come back to it and I'll put it as a written form on the... Well, it, it feels... To me, it feels like... Uh, I think it's, it feels different for everybody. But a couple of commonalities is... So I really like Simon Sinek's talk on the power of why. So it's knowing your why. 
Um, because if you can't explain your why, then you haven't yet found your purpose. It doesn't mean you're not, you don't have purpose. It means that you're still looking for it. You're still trying to figure out how to articulate it. Um, so I think it's that. But the other thing I think for me and for everybody I've seen who has found their purpose and starts living based on their purpose, one thing that's significantly different for them is, and I guess I take this from the alchemist, okay. is that the universe conspires to help them keep doing what they're doing. So once you're on your purpose, once you're on your path, things get easier. You might be doing something so, so, so hard, but it gets, it's easier. Once you're doing the thing you're meant to be doing in the world, what your purpose is, roadblocks start clearing. You suddenly start finding 700 people who are willing to give you $200,000 to start the thing that, you know, you want to exist in the world because they want it to exist also. So, and usually that's just an internal compass thing that once you start doing it and you start noticing like, oh, wait, this is getting easier. Life, wait, something's different. And then you just kind of keep going. And when, you're, when you get off the path, you feel it, you know, life tells you. And then you just kind of like course correct and you get back. So I feel like paying attention to that internal compass and having other people around you who, can, who also see you and can reflect back to you when they see that you're on or off the path or ask good questions or like our guides do a really good job of doing that. And they keep those students' stories. They're like story catchers for them and can reflect it back to them. That helps too. Got it. Where can people find you or your projects? The projects on the interwebs? Yeah, the, we have the normal things, right? Okay. Like, uh, website. website is wayfindingacademy.org. Don't even get me started on what it takes to get a .edu domain name. <laughs> the regulations are bizarre. Bizarre. So, um, we are .org for the time being, wayfindingacademy.org. Um, we are really active on Facebook and Instagram. We also have other things like Twitter, but we don't do as much on Twitter. We found that for us, Instagram and Facebook are the um, more effective ways to communicate with our platform. Uh, I mean, with our community. We also have a YouTube channel. So if you're like intrigued and you want to like see things in more depth, we have a series of, I think, 14 videos that's called This is Wayfinding, a series that are document our documentarian made over the past year and it dives deep into all sorts of things including the most viewed one we have at the moment i think is our campus tour where one of our students gives a tour of the campus and tells stories as he goes great so that stuff we're done all right we're here thank you for coming yeah thank you so much for having me thanks so i think a good place to jump off uh, in this uh, interview would be maybe paint us a picture of how does childhood look like for you um, childhood for me was pretty solid. I feel very grateful. Um, I grew up in Beaverton, so just outside of Portland, um, and have two older sisters and two parents. And my parents divorced when I was in fourth grade, but they didn't live very far apart, so I could always, like, spend time with everyone in my family. Um, and I, like, I loved school growing up, um, and I was on swim team, um, yeah. What else, is there, like, do you want, like, in terms of education, or just, like, anything? Anything. Anything. <laughs> um. Did, did your parents, because it's very different over in Asia, I, I mean, in the U.S., like, uh, like, a separation of parents is like, oh, yeah, just throw down the road, like, everyone. 
<laughs> That's the story of everyone, right? Yeah. Did it affect you in any way? Um, I think I took it pretty hard right at first, and I think I was really confused. How old were you? Uh, like eight. Um, but my parents were very like open with me, and so it wasn't. Um, it wasn't hard to adjust because they were really honest. They were just like we. We tried really hard. Um, you know, we went through marriage counseling and like, it's just not going to work. And like, this is what's best for everybody. Like they, they told me like, we didn't make this decision lightly. So how did they broke the news to you? Um, sort of in like little increments. Like oh, they, wow. yeah. That'd so it was like, I was kind of involved in the, in the process, not in, not, not in such an extreme degree that was inappropriate, but in a way that they were like, Hey, like we're having a hard time right now. And this is what this looks like. Mm-hmm. Like we're spending maybe less time together or you know, we're going to counseling together. Mm. Um, and then uh, one day they were like, well, you know how we talked about maybe if, you know, we don't work this out, we'll get divorced. Well, like that's happening. Like, oh. and in a few months, you know, that like happened. dad's going to move out. Like, yeah. Right. So I sort of, um, I think it was really good for me to sort of get like a heads up from my parents. Like, oh, yeah. know what was happening. For sure. I think they, they, they're really good on the communication part, hey? Yeah, they had excellent communication. And, like, how, from your point of view, mm-hmm. what do you think, like, do you learn anything from that relationship? And does, do you know, how, how is that going to bring forward to you? In, oh, I know that's tough, but I mean, That is so tough. I don't know. I think, um, I think I probably did learn from their, like, communication. And, like, they gave... Like, they tried really hard. Like, I believe that both my parents did their best my entire childhood. Mm. Um, and I think that that has taught me to, like, work really hard at things. And I think I I think I also have good communication skills. And I think I got that from, from my mom. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was eight years old. Um, yeah. Maybe, like, walk us through sort of... Um, your education uh, from from there onwards from and there um, I like I said I always loved school when I was in sixth grade I had kind of a rough year um, going into middle school and like middle school's really tough <laughs> just like socially like it's so awkward right. and everyone's having a hard time but I was well, really that, like puberty and exactly yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but I got really bored in school and I would just like I wasn't feeling challenged and so I stopped doing my work mm. and I just like kind of checked out and was like I don't care about this mm. um, and so my grades dropped mm. and I was grounded for like the first time in my entire life <laughs> by, by, by my parents oh, they wow, were like okay. who you know you have to do your work. And so I was grounded until I got all these like missing assignments in. Yeah. Um, but then my cousin who was also in the same school district as me, uh, went to like an option school and the Beaverton school district has what like four or five like option schools that you can enroll in. And they're still a public school, but they're, um, they usually have like a specialty. So, like, the Beaverton School District has one for arts, they have one for science, they have one for, um, like, technology, and I went to the International School of Beaverton for my seventh grade year. So I transferred, and it's a school that also teaches you a foreign language, and they had um, sort of more of an emphasis on, like, learning about the world. Right. And uh, sort of, yeah, expanding students' worldview. We had, like, different exchange students coming in, and um, the, the, like, academics were more rigorous. Mm. Um, and I'm going to just 
rewind back a little bit because you 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 see it as you are bored at that time that mm-hmm. you didn't do well. How was it? Like, did you feel that? I mean, was that the? Is that looking back that you say you're bored? But how was it like then? And I thought that I was just like dumb back then. Like <laughs> I thought that I wasn't doing well because I was stupid. Right. When in, when in actuality, I think I just wasn't engaged with the material. Like it wasn't being taught mm. to me in a way that I felt like I could sort of take off with it. Mm. Um, there wasn't any sort of like self-directed element. There wasn't anything where I right. could explore. It was just like learn this thing and it was easy for me. And so I was like, I don't want to do that. And then, I fell behind because it was all easy. And but then, how do you gain that that sort of like like sort of perspective? Um, when did you when did you gain that? Because I, I think when I got probably to to the second school that I transferred to, mm-hmm. and things got more interesting, and I got sort of excited about learning again, and I was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. Like this is ah, so through the option school, mm-hmm. I was able to sort of. Um, yeah, get that perspective by being in a place that was just a much better fit for me where I felt like I could learn and, um, yeah, be more like engaged in the material. And I was like, Oh, the problem was the school. Like the problem wasn't me. Like I'm doing fine. Yeah. Like now that I'm in a, a better environment for me, I'm learning and I, I'm doing well. So I must not be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you walk us through a little bit, how long was the option school and when you graduated, how old were you? I was there for 7th and 8th grade, and I had the option to go through high school, but I decided to go to back to like a traditional public school high school mm. because that's where a lot of my friends were going. Okay. And so I so wanted to you, like follow my friends. Right. So. Then you're bored again? <laughs> uh, a little bit, but also uh, at my high school, there were options to take like more advanced choices and like take classes. You know, you get to pick your schedule, and so I was able to pick classes that I thought were more interesting. Okay. Yeah. But then, so did that help in the transition? Yeah, that helped. That helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, when you went back to traditional school, how old were you? Like, eight grade? That Fourteen. Fourteen, yeah. yeah. Ninth grade. Ninth grade. And and how does that look like, sort of, like, moving forward after ninth grade? Um, I... I did pretty well in school for the most part, which is good. Um, but I got pretty like sick towards the end of my like senior year of high school. Um, some like health problems came up, and so I was kind of in and out of school, and my grades dropped a little bit, and that made it like difficult for me to graduate. And I felt like the more I was like struggling with my health, the more anxious I was getting, and I had really bad social anxiety, which was also making it hard for me to go to school. So I ended up taking a couple of online courses in order to get all the credits I needed to graduate high school. Mm-hmm. And you di- and you did. Yeah, and I oh. did. Yeah, I graduated on time and everything, but I just had to take some online courses in addition to like going to school. Got it. Um, do you mind sharing the like you know what happened? Were you better now? Or? Uh, yeah, I'm all good now. Okay. It's sort of I kind of keep it in the past. Got it. Cool. <laughs> I'd prefer not to dig too deep into it. Yeah, yeah, I know. All good. Um, so uh, after graduation, uh, yeah. what, what what happened? Well, I was still sort of like recovering from from being ill, and so I had I was accepted to Southern Oregon University, and I was gonna go, and then my parents and I decided that I like wasn't ready. Like the, I just hadn't. I kind of hadn't had enough time to prepare, and I was still kind of on the mend, and so mm. I decided to. Um, stay back and 
just kind of work and hang out. And I thought that I would just go to college the next year. Um, but I didn't go to college the next year <laughs> or the year after. I just kind of ended up, like, I got a job at a bagel place for a while. And then I got a job at Target. Um, and then I got a job at a foster home that I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked that job um, for over a year. Yeah. Uh, and then I started to feel really stuck again, that same Ah, kind of feeling. Okay. Um, and I like, I called my mom one day, like really stressed out. And I was just like, I feel like I'm going nowhere. And my mom was like, it's time for you to go to school. (laughs) (laughs) Like she, uh, in the most loving way possible. She was like, I've seen you get into this rut and you're bored. Like, Mm. like move on, like move forward, go to school. Right. And this time do you like... Did, he, did she hit the nail on the head? Like, oh, yeah. She was 100% right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And and so now you have um, Southern Oregon uh, um, mm-hmm. on, on the table. Yeah. And and what else? What are options were you thinking about? I was thinking about um, like Portland Community College um, just because it's very affordable and it would allow me to sort of start out slow. So I ended up taking one course that spring. Could we, what is the difference in terms of the cost? Mm, well, Southern Oregon, you have to go, like, I think full-time or part-time. Um, so, I mean, that's, like, several thousand dollars. But at PCC, it's just, I mean, it's, like, less than a thousand for a course. Okay. Yeah, so it's just, and I wanted to start out slow, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just took one class that spring. Um, and that? then What class did you took? In- I took American Sign Language, because I had, I had some friends that knew sign language, and so I thought it would be fun. Mm. And it was. It was a really, it was a good class. I like, I made friends, so I was like more social, mm. and um, yeah, my mom was really right. That was like exactly what I needed. <laughs> um, and since it worked out so well, I decided that I wanted to um, like keep going to school. And then at that point, like Wayfinding Academy came into my radar mm. again. How did that came into your radar? Um, well, uh, like several years prior, uh, Wayfinding was doing their Indiegogo campaign mm. um, to like launch the school yeah. from the start. And I was really interested. And I like sent in an email around the time that Cohort 1 was like getting enrolled. And I was like, hey, what's this process? This school sounds great. Um, and then I never like followed through with it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I think I was just... Wait, so what did, What happened? So you sent an email, did they, they respond? Mm, yeah, I started talking to some of like the, uh, the student recruitment, the matchmaking team, um, and I like started the application, but the questions on the application are so intense <laughs> that I just didn't finish it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I talk about it. I was like, oh, no. Yeah, um, it is pretty intense. Yeah, and yeah. I think I... I think I just wasn't ready. Like, I think I just lacked the emotional maturity to like go there and like put myself out there. Right. But do you think that you, it would be better if they were like, hey, by the way, these are really high questions. <laughs> I, I think they kind of do because you do like a pre-app interview where you oh. talk to someone on the phone and they get to know you and they're like, hey, we just want to get to know you. So here are these questions about your life. But then I opened it up. I was so overwhelmed. I was like, hard pass. No. <laughs> okay, now you got to tell us some of the questions that are like extremely hard over here. Um, they ask you like what your... So is this a 15-page report that we're going to sign no, out? It's no, it's pretty like... How many questions are there? Uh, maybe 10. Okay, 10. Okay, so it's a good start. It's not a lot. There's but the like, 10 hard ones. Yeah, they're like, what are your three big life questions you have right now? Um, and they ask you They ask you about like your educational history. They ask you about... That's easy, right? Yeah. 
May I ask you about some of like your big goals, like your big like whys? Well, like I don't have fun. I just want to chill out. Yeah, I was just like I, I don't just know. have fun, and you know. <laughs> yeah, and there's like a you watch. There's a few like video options, right? And you watch them and like write uh like an analysis of it, like a oh, response piece to it. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just never finished the application. <laughs> but uh, then I got an email from Michelle, like moving back forward after that um, spring term at PCC, Portland Community College. I got this email from Michelle that was like, hey, we're doing a survey of students who were interested in wayfinding and didn't made. become a student. Like, right. would you please fill this survey out? We're just gathering some information. And I was like, oh man, I'm looking to go back to college right now. And I was like, emailed her back right away and I was like, I'd be happy to fill this out. Also, are you accepting applications for your next cohort? <laughs> Wait, but then, but then like, do you think like, you, I mean, you have one more year to mull over those 10 questions. Yeah. So I had some time <laughs> and she was just like, absolutely. Here's the application. Right. Like, so, but is, is it the same questions or is it like, yeah, it was the same question. Oh. <laughs> I think so. I mean, like they scale it back down a little bit. I, yeah. But what was the, some of the questions they were uh, asking for in the survey? Um, um, I honestly don't really remember the survey. I think it was just like, what are you doing with your life since you're not at Wayfinding? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Some demographic stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, and so the like Wayfinding was holding um, an open house pretty mm-hmm. shortly after. And so I went with my mom and we like toured the school and we talked to Michelle and I talked to several of the cohort one students um, and was just like in love with the place. And my mom was like, this is perfect for you. Uh, and I was like, yeah, you're right. It is. And so, um, I moved forward with wayfinding. So do you, was it a hard decision to make comparing to other options that you have? Um, it was a hard decision to make because it was a very big decision and it was kind of, um, scary. I think I get anxious and that leads me to be indecisive. Mm. Um, at least do. historically. Yeah. And I think that this is kind of a big leap. I mean, it's college, like it's a lot of money. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, a lot. Yeah. I met with the like business officer at the school to work out like a payment plan that would work for me. Right. And they were like amazing oh, at being accommodating. Um, and like worked out with my parents, like what we could all chip in to pay for college. Um, so I think the fact that it was such a big commitment mm. felt really, really scary. Mm. Um, and I was very nervous, but I'm, it worked out like it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, and when you went into wayfinding, um, what, when you, you know, sign the documents and Mm -hmm. pay the money Yeah. and what did you want to get out of it? Like then? I think I wanted direction. Like, I knew that I was, like, capable. Um, I knew, Person. Yeah. Like, Not dumb. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I knew I was smart. I knew I was capable. And, like, I just knew that I had a lot of potential. Right. But I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, well, this college will just help me figure everything out, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> like, they'll help me find my way. Right. Well, but that's also, that's also their entire promise right exactly in, yeah. many, in many ways and um did, did that i mean did the curriculum make sense for you that like okay after learning these courses it will help me find my way 
they make sense. Uh, I think so. I think I was also very drawn to the internship part of the curriculum mm-hmm, right. um, because I was like, oh, like I'll get to try stuff out. Like, oh, yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. I was, yeah, I think I'm really and was really excited at the opportunities to just experiment mm. and kind of test the waters and like anything that I find interesting and just get the chance to explore before I make another big commitment to, yeah. <laughs> to, to take my life in any particular direction. Right. <laughs> and and also, I guess, once you're... Okay, so you, you, you pay the money, you sign up. Mm-hmm. For, uh, did they come and give you the box? And Oh, yeah, <laughs> they did, which I hate surprises. And <laughs> so my, my mom and my best friend, right. uh, Shelby, coordinated... Oh. And Shelby was like, you have to come and hang out with me. Like, come over today. Like, we'll do crafts or whatever. We're, like, making candles. And I was like, why are you so pushy? Like, I, like, didn't really want to hang out with her that day. I was really tired. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, come over, come over. And I was like, fine. So I went over to her house. Um, and then the doorbell rang, like, after about an hour or so that I was there. And Shelby turned to me and she was like, that one's for you. And I was like, why would somebody come for me at your house? <laughs> And I opened the door, and it was one of the cohort one students um, and one of the luminaries with the box. And I was just, like, so caught off guard. I was like, um, hi? <laughs> and they, they have a little, um, like, script that they read that, like, welcomes you to the school and lets you know what your next step is if you'd like to to join. And I was just like, cool. And one of the things they do that, that I think is really rad is they present you with a cap and gown. Mm. Um as part of their mission to do college backwards of like, they already think that you have like done this great big step. And so they, they do that and they ask you to put it on. And I said, no. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> yeah. I was just so caught off guard and I was like, I don't really like to be on camera cause they were like filming it and they were like, Oh, that's okay. So they like, they were like, all the directions are in the box. Like, have a good rest of your day. And just politely retreated. Oh. <laughs> and did you do a Shelby like talk? Like, Shelby? Yeah. Oh, do I was, not. I was like, I hate surprises. Right. Why would you do this to me? And Shelby was like, because it was funny. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and do you guys talk, look look at the, the bag and the box? What's, what else is inside yeah, there? Yeah, there was like a little, there was some like wayfinding stickers. There was a little wayfinding backpack, the capping mm-hmm. gown, and then um, a little like invitation card to go online and sort of secure your spot in the cohort. And mm. information about orientation was on there as well. Great. Now, now first day, move, moving forward, first day. Oh my gosh, orientation. <laughs> yeah. Such a wild ride. <laughs> you spend like your first day of orientation at the school like talking to other students and just sort of getting like a lot of general knowledge of like this is where things are this is what's in the neighborhood that right. kind of thing but you also have been to the place before so yeah but not with like all your other cohort mates because then you're seeing who you're going to be with for the next all two right, years well, you don't like them right exactly oh. so nerve-wracking um and then like the the second through like the fourth or fifth day of orientation, you are camping or not like camping, but you're in the woods in like a cabin. In a cabin? Yeah, it's a retreat. What? Yeah. Wait, so wait, did they tell you that beforehand? They did. They were like you're but they didn't give a lot of details. They just said like we're gonna go to a retreat, like And then just like pack up clothes and Mhm. Yeah, and um so we all went out to this so the orientation is, is full on. It's like full day and then... Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so you're with people for like four days straight. Like you're sharing a room with them. <laughs> like, Whoa. 
it's very intense. And you have your first classes out there, like the teachers drive out there too. What? Uh-huh. So wait, so how many of you guys were in the cohort? And um, I think we started with like 17. Okay, so 17 is in the cohort. And then mm-hmm. you, each of you have a cabin. Oh no, two of you or four of you have a share like, It was like a big oh. building with like almost like dorm room style. Oh, and okay. there were other cabins like around the campsite. Huh. Um, but I had two other people in my like room that we were sharing. Oh. <laughs> Which is a really fast way to get to know somebody. Oh, 100%. share a space with them for four days straight. Yeah, you snore? Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and like as an introvert, I was like so overwhelmed. I was like, I just want to be alone. Like you all seem cool, but I just like, <laughs> I'm so done. I don't, do you watch the Susan Cain uh, TED Talk? Oh no! Oh my God, you gotta watch it. So okay. Susan Cain um, write a book, uh, Quiet: The Power of Introvert in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Oh, I need to read it. Yeah, and then she was, she have a, a cabin moment as well. So I think oh. yeah, yeah, you, okay. you like it. I'll definitely look that up. So well, well, how was the four days? And I mean, like, so second day you're sharing a bed. Yeah. And what's happening? You, there's a lot of, like, team-building activities. Oh, my God. That's the last thing you want to do. Uh, yeah. Well, sort of, like, the first and the last. Because I was like, I just sort of want to get it over with. Like, I just want to skip to the part where we're all friends. Like, <laughs> it was just so much so fast. But, um, yeah. But we all got to know each other. We, like, shared, like, life stories. We, you know, ate all our meals together. We had, like, recreation time where there, we could, like, canoe on a lake. Like, oh, yeah. Alone or like with someone else? Two per- like two person. Uh, I, I wanted to but, just do it alone. I, yeah, but at the I corner. Also, <laughs> at that corner. Just me trying to paddle a two yeah. person. Um, and we and like I said, we had our classes, mm-hmm. uh, and there was lots of information about like this is what this is what it's going to look like. Like this is what wayfinding is. We had our first like guide group and like guide meeting. Um, orientation and there was a lot of just like like bonding time Mm. just like hanging out getting to know each other so without putting any names uh to the rest of your cohort mates (laughs) or we can change names um what is the what is the you know how does the cohort look like do you like some people more oh and also bear in mind this is that at that time at that time right there were some. Were people, you like, I'm done. I'm like getting my money out and like I'm going home. This is not for me. Not to that extent, but there were some people that I wasn't super thrilled with. Right. And those those were mostly just the, the very extroverted people, the people that were talking a lot, oh the people God. that were really loud, just because I was so overwhelmed. Yeah. And I was just like, I just want to retreat. And then the other introverts were like, Do you want to go have quiet time? Like, does anyone just want to go sit and like <laughs> hang out? And I was like, You're my people. Right. <laughs> Uh, and is it is it a split between is it a half half split? Um, I would say more people are pretty extroverted. Huh. Yeah, at least it seemed that way at the time. But I could have just been very overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but so you still managed to find some people. Yeah. That so that keep you going. It's like yeah. I'm not catching out. Right. I found the other quiet people, and they're the ones that I shared like a room with. Right. And so, like, we'd be, like, dismissed from an activity, and they'd be, like, free time. And we would be, like, nap time, nap time, nap, yeah, okay. <laughs> and we'd all go nap. <laughs> That's awesome. But you do you manage to – are you able to choose your um, – um, what do you call it? Your bunkmate? No, right? Yeah, everyone oh, got can... to choose their own room. So oh. I think I might have just gotten really lucky that we had, oh, yeah. that all the quiet people ended up in one room together. <laughs> so you guys are just spot each other. Yeah. Right. 
And I think also the like the loud kind of like people that wanted to stay up late and like talk and hang out all kind of went to like one big like one of the bigger rooms mm-hmm. and that just left us and we were like cool so i want to know a little bit more about this whole introversion because i think i don't i haven't i don't know where i am on that scale really yeah um but so when introverts hang out with each other they don't talk to each other is that what it is sometimes <laughs> one of my favorite things about some of my best friends is that we can be together in a room but we don't have to talk like mm. it's like very relaxing for me to be like doing work or art or whatever just like next to somebody mm. and like not talk to them just the presence yeah just having their presence just like sharing space with someone got it but so- i also talk to my friends too. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have telepathy. <laughs> I actually do talk. Um, yeah, one year you just finished the yeah. one year mark. Um, let's tell me a little bit about um, what you learned from the first year, and also, um, yeah, why don't we start there and then we can expand out a little bit. Um, what have I learned? Yeah, I feel like so much. <laughs> I know it's I hard, think, right? Yeah. I think one of the things that I learned is that, like, there's so many opportunities available. Like, I don't think I realized how much there is to do in oh. the world. Okay, go ahead. So, expand on that. <laughs> like, um, I don't know. I think I just had, like, a very narrow view of what my future would, like, look like. And I kind of figured that I'd, like, have to get a four-year degree or something and then I'd probably get a job where I'd probably be in an office and I'd probably work there forever Mm -hmm. but just getting to know so many different people who have so many different careers and like some that looks so many different ways wait so how did they how did you learn about that how do you how do you internalize that sort of now you change the entire belief how did that what shift for you I started like I was very I was very slow to warm up. So I think I spent the whole term just getting used to the fact that I wasn't wayfinding. Like, I didn't really put myself out there. Like, I kind of kept my head down and just sort of, like, got through it. But then when term two came around, I was like, oh, I've done this. Okay, like, I know this. I'm in more of a rhythm. Mm. And I started, like, saying yes to things. So, Mm. like, one of the things that I got to do or get to do still is be on the TEDx Mount Hood planning team. Right. Um, because there's a lot of overlap. Uh, like Michelle Jones is yeah. like leading the that planning team. Yeah. yeah. And so um, she like opened it up to students and I like said yes to that. Mm. Um, and there were a lot of like little little things too, like uh, volunteering at World Domination Summit last weekend. Yeah. Um, and just sort of, putting myself out there and getting more involved in these kinds of community events and getting to know people and seeing like, Oh, what do you do? Like you, you're like teaching voice lessons for a living or like, you're doing, did that, did that even exist? You're, yeah, you're writing for a living. You just like, you just write, you just write <laughs> and you can do that wherever you want. Like what? What, what a concept. Just, yeah. And seeing like the people just talking to the people in the building of like, um, that have had, you know, six different career changes and now they're working at Wayfinding or people mm. that did, you know, maybe a more traditional path, but now they're, they're working at Wayfinding and they right. love it. And that. And so you have like proof, like you have actual yeah, living like proof. You know, like, yeah, that's the best way to, exactly. you can, li- you can read a story. Yeah. But now you, this is, this dude doesn't even look like anything. Yeah. There's <laughs> real people in front of me saying like, this is how I did it. You could do it any way you want. Mm. And did that sort of like throw you into a doozy? Because now yeah. it's like, 
Oh yeah, my god. That's exactly that's like how 10 million I, choices. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel right now. Which I think <laughs> is really but I think it's really cool. Yeah. Like it was very um it was a lot at first to get used to this idea that there was just so many options and I was kind of like, "Ah, oh, fuck, what do I do?" Right. But now it's like, "Oh, I have so many options. I can do whatever." Like yeah. and I don't and I don't have to just stick with one forever either. Mm. And I think that has been very like powerful for me. Oh yeah. Certainly for me too. Um, I so I then you know I used to be a wedding planner, right? No, I didn't right. know that. Yeah, so I used to be a wedding planner. Uh, I, I used to be I do events, and the story is that I, I used to do events, and I was like, I knew I was good at it. And but a lot of these events are copy and paste, so you're mm-hmm. not talking about like world domination. Something change each year, yeah, which is intense. But most of the people who run events kind of wanted to do that, look the same, so there's less cognitive yeah. uh, power to go into, like like doing different things, right? Um, so, but I kind of like also want to do something creative. So that that's how I move into wedding. And so uh, fast forward, I was in California and interning with some of the best wedding planners. Um, and then I came back and started my own thing and became top 10 wedding planner in Singapore. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and so what was lucky for me is that uh, I started making some money, like, you know, uh, and it's like, okay, well, that's kind of a career. But also, like, now that I'm the top of the ladder, I'm just like, oh, is this it? Yeah, what's um, next? Yeah. <laughs> and I proceeded to just, like, let's start different things. And once my other business took off, which is the 2D animation studio, um, I was like, oh, well, let's, let's just do that and, you know, give this away. So I gave my entire business away for free. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I put a video out. It's like, hey, you know, you, you have a dream to be a wedding planner. And then, like, 40 people wrote in. I choose the person that's most um, likely to succeed. Uh, and I put that together with two of my friends who are already like, established wedding planners to learn the ropes really quickly. Um, so the idea that, like, you don't... I don't, I, I can be a wedding planner at one point in time, yeah. which was a career. And then I can just move it really quickly to something else, too. And that ability uh or that notion that i can change at any time one yeah it's pretty amazing that's incredible yeah yeah so that kind of story those stories just like blow my mind like there's just so much out there so wayfinding what so what are the uh, few core curriculums because there's nine mm-hmm. um which one have you taken yet um the first term i took uh understanding our world and wayfinding 101 and then second term, I took engaging with information and making good choices. Mm. And then third term, which is just wrapping up now, I'm taking futures and citizenship. Mm. So you have taken five. Yeah. Which one do you uh, love the most? Uh, engaging with information. Ooh. Why do you like that the most? Um, it gave me so much room to explore. Do you want to describe a little bit on the class, though? Um, sure. It is all... It's almost self-explanatory. It's all about engaging with information. <laughs> we started talking about like what is like the first kind of information that we have like got in the world. Like where did writing come from? And then we sort of transitioned to like what what is information? How do we interact with it on a daily basis? We talked about like journalism and media and underground media. We did like a fake news unit. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's fun. And, and then we talked about like what is information going to look like in the future. Wow. And like all through that, we practiced like um, sort of analytical skills of like not like what does information look like in the world and like also how do we interact with it personally? Like when we're reading an article, like how are we analyzing it? How do mm. we make sure it's good? Like, 
what what well, is it what information well, is you it gonna give us? me some tips now <laughs> okay so i'm reading an article i'm a new yorker yeah i'm reading an article what, what should i look at um i usually one thing i do is i check sources now oh, i like see any I mean, any really good article is going to have sources so you got to okay so that's a good heuristic yeah. to know if it's a good and, article and check the sources too if they're citing something that isn't like reputable right and so if if you could spot the circ so did they did they show you or like a circular argument did they show you how a good article looked like and bi- yeah we uh-huh. we did like a lot of compare and contrast of different articles we looked we talked a lot about bias mm-hmm. i think that's oh, a lot wow. i think that's a lot what i mean by like circular argument that's awesome. just like we talked about like what bias does this person have like where are they coming from like are they only citing sources from other really biased places oh like, yes how can we tell if something really is unbiased is anything ever really unbiased okay yeah you know we had those kinds of what conversations. Do, you, do you learn what kind of biases do you learn about because there's like a lot of biases we like categories of biases yeah we talked a lot about political bias okay um i think partially because it's super easy to find examples of but um like we would find like a political event or something that like happened and read like articles that were to the right to the center and to the left ah. and like analyze like what the difference of like what was the tone difference right. and what are they saying about it? How are they like recounting the events differently? Wow. Um, like what way, in what direction are they like leading their reader? Like what message are they trying to send about what happened? That kind of a thing. And, and like through that class after you graduate from the class, like how do you feel that you interact with information differently now? Um, I think that class really helped me get curious about everything one of the things that i thought was really awesome in that class was like we would do like an assignment or like we would spend class time on something like uh underground information we talked about what what that looks like like things that aren't mainstream we learned about zines because zines are one way that yeah um that people spread around like underground information and then for the second half of class Mm. we, we made a zine we like just made our own zine Mm, wow, um, that's cool. And we had to do like a certain number of projects for the course, and then we had a final project. Um, and I thought like that really helped me get excited about the things that I wanted to be learning about. And then if I wasn't super stoked about something, I was able to go like, well, like I I did it, and and I'm going to spend my time on this other project. That's very cool. Yeah. Okay, so we have the the the, the happy ones, the good the good classes. Now yeah. let's talk about the opposite end of the spectrum. Was some tough classes? I felt really, really challenged by uh, understanding our world. Okay. First term. Why is that so? Um, it was very, very like heavy course material. Whoa. Okay. We talked about like the colonization of like the United States and like colonization around the world. Yeah, and then that was like the first unit, and then the second unit we talked about what like decolonization looks like and sort of what like revolution looks like and. <sighs> How, how are we going to change the world? Which is amazing. Like, it was so important, and I feel like I learned a lot of really valuable history. Right. But I think also, while I was just sort of still getting used to being at Wayfinding uh-huh. and getting used to everything, like, I just, like, couldn't handle it. Like, it was just so Oh, yeah, much. I think, I mean, like, I put it as the first term, Yeah, you it's know? pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, walls, people are dying. Yeah. <laughs> But what was how did so how did you uh, react it when you were thrown with information like that? And you mentioned also the project that was like pretty intense. Yeah, we did a really tough project where we um, 
towards the end of the second unit, we picked a world problem that was important to us and then wrote a paper about what the problem is, what our solution is, and what the values are that sustain our solution to solving this world problem. So what problem did you pick? I picked the degradation of coral reefs. Whoa, okay. Yeah, because I, I care a lot about the ocean and the yeah. environment. Um, and so I wrote a paper about like implementing tourism standards because that's one of the main things that damages coral reefs. Mm-hmm. But it was so overwhelming. I cried why, why do you, so why, often. Wait, why, why was that? Why was that so? <laughs> it was just so, it felt so heavy. Like, I'm supposed to save the world? Like, this is my first term in college. Like, how do I do that? Well, you're just proposing a solution. True. Yeah, but it, it felt really intense. We had a lot, as like a cohort, a lot of study sessions, just like <laughs> hanging out together, trying to write this paper. <laughs> <laughs> and like, how does the how does the paper look like? Is this like a 20-page thing, 50-page, 100-page? Uh, like eight pages. Okay. Yeah. So the, the length is not the, the problem. No, it was just trying to save the world. <laughs> 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 okay, so one of the things that um, Wayfinding have different is the guides. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, so Wayfinding has the, the guide program. So every student gets a guide, and you take a survey prior to, to your orientation oh. that has, like, how, like, sort of what do you look for in, like, a mentor figure? Like, how do you respond? Mm. Like, do you like somebody who's more to the point? Like, do you like somebody who's more gentle? There's, like, a lot of... Oh, kind of questions like that to kind of help you match up with your guide. Cool. Um, and so you get assigned your guide to orientation, and then you, you get, see, I don't know, like, I don't know, like I, I want someone to the point. Or... I think so. I don't remember. I don't remember right, the right. survey. Okay. But then uh, you get assigned your guide to orientation, and then you meet with your guide for forty-five minutes uh, every week during the terms. Yeah. And then we also have guide groups, which are. Uh, a little over an hour every week that everybody does together that guides uh, facilitate that have like study skills or like resume building or different stuff like that. Okay, so that more is more like a, a workshop sort of. Uh, yeah, kind of like like life skills workshop. Got it. School skills workshop. And and tell me a little bit about like describe to me the first guide experience that you have and where were you what were you doing and how did how did that conversation look like first guide experience uh i think it's just sort of us getting to know each other of like you know her getting to know like my history and like what i what i find helpful what kind of guidance i think i'm gonna need um but it was like really weird at first i was kind (laughs) of like i I wasn't completely sold on it and i was just like do we have to um but also, was, was it because like she didn't sell herself like well no, enough? No, she was amazing. Okay, but she's was... like, yeah, I'm an author. <laughs> I did this amazing thing. I sell that business. And like, I, what do you want to do? Yeah, I just didn't know what like what I was going to get out of the program. I was like, do I really need to meet with somebody all the time? Mm. Um, because I was more used to that sort of like traditional academic advisor where you meet with them like once a year, and they're right. like, yeah, you're fine. You know, oh, so okay. it's like, what can I possibly get out of this? Now I love my guide oh. meetings. Well, so <laughs> what changed? Great. Uh, I think I got to see like how helpful they are and I got to see and I got to just know my guide better Hmm. Um, and can you expand that? yeah for sure they like now now that I know how to like sort of work the guide system and like know what to get out of it I find it really helpful so like we'll talk about my like schedule because like I work and I recently completed the internship and I have class and, and other things I volunteer for and stuff. And so we'll talk about time management yeah. and she helps me with my time management skills 
whether it's like you need to remember to schedule time to do your homework or like you need to remember to schedule time to take a nap like oh unlike every end of the yeah every end of the spectrum she's like no this is how you manage a calendar or I I tend to get very like worked up and like stressed about the future and so I'll be like I'm really stressed about what I'm gonna do like for for this project or for this internship like can we schedule that stress for term four? And she'll be like, oh yeah. And so she'll make a note that we'll start that conversation at term four. And so I know when I need to start worrying about it. Oh, that's awesome. That's one of my favorite things that we do because it's so like that's silly to me. That's a really neat trick yeah, too. Yeah, to schedule my stress. But I'll be like, what am I going to do post wayfinding? I want to start thinking about it uh, during this month. And she'll be like, okay. And Let's so we'll do that. that. Yeah, conversation, so, that stress. <laughs> yeah, and like she'll keep track of that. And she'll be like, hey, it's time to start talking about your internship. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. Oh. And it's great. And she's, uh, we'll like brainstorm stuff for assignments. We have a lot of open ended assignments at Wayfinding to give us like freedom to do what we're interested in. But sometimes mm-hmm. that can be hard too. And so oh, we'll yeah, ask, cause... like, I have this assignment and I don't know what to do for it. And we'll talk about, like, do I want to write something? Do I want to do art? Do I want to conduct interviews? Like, how, how do I want this to look like? And, you know, that kind of thing too. She's edited papers for me. <laughs> <laughs> You know. <laughs> well, you really took advantage of your uh, full full advantage of this uh, guy yeah. session that you, for yeah. forty five minutes, right? Well, we're supposed to. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, if you were to explain to a new person, like you, imagine explain the guy session. Mm-hmm. Now that you think it's super helpful to yeah. this new the the, the you who just mm-hmm. got to meet your first guy for the first time. Yeah. How would you tell them, like, you know, like what? Probably that that like guide meetings are sort of a cross between like academic advisory and like mentorship um and that guides are just there to sort of help you through this like journey help make sure you're on track and like help you with the little things along the way to make sure that you're getting the most out of what you can Mm. very cool the guy yeah did do you feel that do you feel that right now after going through a lot of this guide session you could be a guy yourself Maybe not yet. But okay. Maybe at the end of my wayfinding journey. Interesting. <laughs> but where, where, what, what, what do you think you might lack or you want to have before you be a guy? Or someone um, else? I think I am still unlearning a lot of traditional school, which is something that comes up a lot for me and, and for other wayfinding students of, uh, being at Wayfinding, it's so self-directed and it's there's you just have so much like educational freedom yep. that it's hard to kind of get out of this rut of like these like stories we're told about school when you go through traditional schools in regards to like grades or like what assignments should look like mm-hmm. or like what your real goals are like the goals at Wayfinding are, are to like explore and learn and like grow and stretch and cultivate yourself as a human Whereas a goal in traditional school is just to get the A and to get the degree and yep. to like move on. And I think I'm still sort of in that unlearning process. And I still sort of like will find myself worrying about a grade and then be like, I don't get grades. I get evaluations. This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> like this shouldn't be a point of stress. Like if I if I do what I'm feeling really passionate about, then I'm then that's gonna go great at wayfinding. Um, so I think I wanna be I would wanna be like further along in that sort of unlearning process. Mm. Uh, before I was a guide. Right. And what do you feel are some of the things that have popped up that under, you know you need to learn? What are the few big things? Um, grades is like a big one. Like I was always 
like an overachiever mm -hmm. and it's weird not to have anything to overachieve on. Like mm -hmm. the only, the only real person I'm going to let down at wayfinding is myself. So like it's, there's no like external validation of getting an A. Oh. It's just me doing my best on a project that I feel stoked about, which is amazing. But it's also like surprisingly challenging at times because Why? I'm like, cause there's, I, it's hard when I'm the only one measuring it. Like, I'm like, how do I know it's good? Like, I want somebody else to give me an A. Right. And it's been exciting, but also confusing to be like, it's just, it's just me. What, what has helped uh, in, in sort of like the measurement side, on the internal measurement side? Mm, I think like reminders from like my cohort mates and from faculty and staff at Wayfinding, just that. Everyone went through this? Yeah. Mm. That just like, this is... Like, this is just the process, and that it's all about, like, just me learning, you know? Yeah, that's very interesting. And, and how do you see that? Like, this sort of methodology of looking at measurements? Um, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I have an answer for It's just, that like, one. different, right? Yeah, it's just really different. Do you think it's, like, you know, do you think it's better or worse? Or? I, think it's, I think it's way better. Why like, is that? Just to have the like to have the freedom to just do what you want in school, mm. you know. And like, there's so much that is like, um, like you don't get to explore if you're just going for the grade. Like, you're just checking boxes, you're just memorizing facts or whatever. But at Wayfinding, you're exploring what you think is really cool, and like. The number of times that I've been like, I don't feel connected to this assignment and I want to do another assignment instead. And the teacher's been like, yeah, do the one you're stoked about. It's like four or five times. Like, <laughs> There's been a lot of times where I'm like, I accidentally spent a month on this other project instead of doing these other projects. But I ended up with one really good project. And the teacher's like, great, like, good job. Awesome. Or like I, That's one time awesome. we were supposed to write like a research paper and I accidentally wrote a reflective essay because I had a lot of reflecting to do. And then I came to the teacher and I was like, I accidentally did the wrong assignment. And she was like, that's fine, turn it in. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so we have the last two questions. Okay. Um, you, so you went into wayfinding wanting to, to find some directions. Yeah. Where are you on that journey on the direction? Um, I feel like I've done a lot of exploring mm -hmm. this first year and I hope to spend the next next three terms sort of narrowing in on some things. But I think more than anything, I'm learning how to like explore and get excited about things. Like I think I'm sort of learning the skills to just dive in and be like, yeah, I can do that. Sure. Like, awesome. let's go. <laughs> then anything else. And I was sort of like struggling with this not too long ago where I was thinking like, I feel like so many other people like know what they want to do from this program. Like so many other people are like, Oh, this is what I'm focusing on. This is what I'm doing. And I don't feel that I feel excited about like different things. I feel excited about everything basically. Um, but I was like, maybe that's what I'm learning. Maybe I'm just learning how to get excited about things and like go for things and put myself out there and then switch gears when I want to. Mm. And just like, uh, focusing on cultivating those skills that I can then apply just later in life to whatever, even if I don't end up with one thing at the end of these two years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Super important. Um, 
so you have went through sort of like a divergence phase where you try a couple of things. You have a couple of things you spoke about, and now sort of like you just gotta narrow down and and like it's not that you're gonna not try the rest of the things. Yeah. But it's like this is the first thing I want to try. Exactly. <laughs> because because how easy it is for uh, you know for us to just say oh this is the one and then like oh I gotta burn the rest. No, it's like sort of like yeah. just maybe do this for three years and then like yeah. learn a whole bunch of things and like be really good get paid. And then, like, take that, maybe, like, half the things you might learn from the skills that transfer into this thing. So, instead of going three years, maybe one and a half years in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And my last question to you is, if um, right now you, um, someone would give you a budget of $50,000. Oh, yeah. um, To spend on wayfinding. Mm -hmm. um, um, To make it however you want. $50,000. How would you spend $50,000? That's a good question. I think one of the first things, probably the first thing I would do, was would be to set up more scholarships. Um, wayfinding has a creed, and one of the things that I feel really connected to is that uh, people should have like access to education without soul crushing debt. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a really big deal is like the accessibility of college. Um, so I'd probably set up a scholarship. And I think I would put put some money in. There's like a student fund <laughs> to like <laughs> that students get to do things with. Um, like we, I think we're using some of the funds to make a garden. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I know the building is working on some like remodel stuff right now. Right. Um, and so I think I'd put the money into some of the like building what remodel. exactly. What so is it okay? So the fund is gonna be. So I'm 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 not gonna get like copy copy out on that because do you so is it a garden that you want or is, like what is what exact oh. remodeling that you want? I think it's more how many student scholarships that I mean, oh, okay. oh we're getting that specific yeah we have, we are okay we have fifty thousand dollars only yeah not a lot of money really uh that's true so I'd probably say like one like a full ride scholarship. Which would leave me with about like thirty thousand dollars left, mm. and then who who would deserve this full ride scholarship? That's such a good question. I think it would be like a needs based scholarship for okay. somebody who couldn't like otherwise afford to go. Got it. Um, and then let's say I put like five thousand dollars into the student fund for students to access um, for when they have you know projects or like big ideas that they need help with. Got it. Um, and then I would put probably the rest of the money into the building remodel. We've got like old rooms in the back of the school that are just, we're kind of using a storage, but the building used to be a YWCA. And so they're like old showers that like don't work anymore. Um, and I love to see those like turned into like classrooms, like more spaces for people to, to come together, hang out, learn. Right, so more spaces. So change the bathroom into yeah. an actual living space. Yeah, it's like an old locker room. Interesting. <laughs> I gotta go check it out. Yeah, I didn't see do. it. <laughs> All right, man, we'll do it. We're done. Cool. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Hey, it's Brian here again. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com, Brian for Y. And if you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. Thanks again for taking your time to listen to this episode and have a fantastic week ahead.